Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything. You might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. Michael, this is our 36th episode. Wow. The big 3-6. That means we have been doing this show for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but, it, it, you know, here's something. We've never missed an episode. <laughs> that is true. It's uh you know I I don't think many people can say that for 3 years of a show even even though it's only one episode a month. Uh you know, we're pretty we're pretty on time. Mhm. We do a pretty good job about doing that. Big big claps for us. And of course, uh we probably wouldn't be here. Well, we might. But uh we probably wouldn't be here if people weren't listening to the show. We'd probably quit. If people didn't <laughs> yeah. listen to it. I think yeah, we we if we had no no listeners, we might have quit within like the first year. Yeah, yeah, we might not have kept doing it, but we have a lot of listeners. We have thousands of listeners, and uh, we want to thank all of you, the people who are listening to this, for being listeners and being supportive of the show and talking about the show. Um, you know, we don't ever, uh, maybe we did, I don't think I did. I We've never done any advertising for the show no. in any kind of way. There was a time early in Range Touch's history when I was uh, playing with Facebook things mm-hmm. and getting extremely granular in my facebook ads oh yeah <laughs> to, to where it would only be displayed to like you know 115 people and facebook would be like are you sure you want to do that and i was like <laughs> yeah i do um, but i don't i think I'd, I'd quit playing with that by the time the game studies anybody started uh i don't know you can go back and listen to episode one to find <laughs> out and uh <laughs> are you sure you only want to advertise to like olympic gold medalists named jeff <laughs> Yeah, basically, it was that I was like, uh, people who like Baldur's Gate, who live in, <laughs> you know, the Midwest, who also like ice cream and elaborate stories <laughs> and are not on Reddit. Okay, who, who is that? Uh, the uh, But no, that that, that is, uh, was for a, a different range touch show. But yeah, so we've been doing that and the show has really only grown by, as far as I know, by word of mouth, by people talking about it, by people uh, tweeting about it, by people recommending it to other people. Um, <laughs> I really like how you said, as far as you know, as if like secretly I took out a Times Square billboard. <laughs> Someone else might have. I wouldn't know. You know, there, there could be a... Uh, like a street vendor somewhere who's just like got a little sign up about it. I don't know, but I didn't have anything to do with this when I'm saying if that's true. Um, uh, so yeah, so thanks to everyone for doing that, making this a very successful, I would say three years, you know, we, we are well over, we're, we're getting close, I think to the 200,000 listen mark, which is huge for wow. an academic podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's also like, this long, this consistently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Like, absolutely. Like, I think that if our episodes were 20 minutes long, we probably would hit that marker a little bit earlier. But uh, yeah, for, you know, you're you're supporting with your your ear holes, this um, long form academic engagement that we try to make as helpful and as useful and as uh, sprightly as we can. But sometimes that's hard. And you have uh, stuck with us the whole time and repeatedly uh, told other people about it, which is the biggest part. You should continue doing that, by the way. Don't stop telling people about it just because <laughs> you're getting all these accolades, right? Like, don't, uh, as a listener, don't get uh, too on your high horse about this. 
Um, you know, you still got to tell people about it. But uh, yeah, we've had weird experiences. I, someone on the Discord was talking about, uh, this is a little while back, but was talking about how they were recommending one of our other shows, Just King Things, to their sibling, I think their sister maybe. Mm-hmm. And their sister was like, oh yeah, listen, Game Study Study Buddies. And, and this sister apparently has nothing to do with game studies. It's not like, uh, you know, a game designer or developer, just enjoys the show. So um, thanks to both of those siblings, <laughs> I guess. Uh, hopefully you're still both listening. Um but yeah, so so just a, a you know delightful three years of uh, reading through these books. I have very strong opinions about what makes for a good game studies book now, <laughs> <laughs> after having to think about it consistently and and uh, constantly for years. And that's actually going to come up in this episode. But I don't know. I feel like I've uh, monologued a little bit here. Michael, do you have any opinions or thoughts or feelings you want to share here? Uh, I mean, nothing much than to echo a lot of the stuff that you've already said. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, please continue to, to spread the word about the show. Let people who you think might be interested, uh, know about it. And thank you also, uh, all of you, but also you Cameron for being here with me on this strange journey, which I probably outlined somewhat in the first episode, which is that, you know, I am not a game studies person. This is not an experience that I had in high school or in high school. Good God. Uh, This is how old I'm getting. Um, I started. So we started McFly. Calm down. Yeah. Like we started, I think we recorded the, this first podcast. We recorded the first episode of the show, either the year that I defended my PhD dissertation or like the month after, like two months afterward or something. Anyway, right. I'm a trained. Yeah, like, it had to be right there because yeah, it was yeah. before I defended mine by about a year. So, right. So uh, this really weird thing happened where I left graduate school in one field and then started this really long ad hoc <laughs> like uh, uh, game study seminar <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. with you and uh, it's been a really interesting experience uh you know revisiting things that i had read of course um and then a whole lot of stuff that i haven't and being able to also kind of you know go off the beaten path of game studies what game studies uh would have been had i taken probably a course in graduate school um and getting to read some of the weirder stuff like clr james uh and beyond a boundary which has been hugely influential for me like not only in my writing on games but also in the writing that i'm doing on uh early modern theater and things like that so uh you know it's been a lot of fun Mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's really funny you say that and you know we don't want this to become the the 30 minutes of talking about academic trajectories but i will add to that just really briefly that um yeah i think when i was done because i wrote my dissertation right so i was like a, maybe a few months into my dissertation maybe halfway through actual words on a page when we started the show um and uh i defended right my dissertation in the middle of that and by the time that I had begun dissertating to finish my PhD, I had decided I did not want to study games anymore. <laughs> I was like not interested. I was interested in reading game studies, interested, interested in doing that and publishing, you know, maybe. But I didn't think that I would, I, I didn't think I wanted to be a game studies scholar anymore, you know, in, in the, the kind of strict boundaries. And my dissertation is not that. I mean, I mm-hmm. write about games in a few ways in that. Um but in the time since we have started the show and in the time since I finished my dissertation and done all of that stuff, I mean, you know, I'm working on a manuscript and waiting on peer review for, for a manuscript on science fiction video games, right? Like <laughs> I have d- dove right back into 
into that and I have, you know, pretty strong opinions about what I think makes for good game studies and what I think is, is uh, or maybe not what makes for good game studies in the abstract, but what I think is the good game studies that I want to be doing, um, you know, um, taste and, and flavor and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think like the work of game studies should look like over the next 10 years, you know, we and we've really been able to highlight some of that work, I think, you know, of, of particularly what's being called. And I think people kind of... Uh, wear this label in a um uh hesitant way which i think is good but but what's been called critical game studies quote unquote mm -hmm. um so leaning into kind of theorization capital t theory a little bit more um uh i don't know i'm sure that will come up at some point but you know so you and i we, we've been working on a piece on on clr james and game studies uh hopefully that'll come out um soon-ish it's part of an edited volume I don't, I don't know if we want to say more about it than that but you know i'm also working on an assassin's creed book and i know that you're also working on a longer bigger project that's kind of gamey as well um mm -hmm. so yeah it's really been you know kind of uh, warped our production our academic production in um i think good and useful ways i, I think that this show you know every I, we get we get a lot of compliments and i'm really appreciative of these compliments that the show helps people figure out ideas or the show the show helps unlock ideas or helps introduce people to new concepts but just as often as that's happening for you the listener that is also happening for us mm -hmm. um and so you know so when we say something in the show that's like wow i never thought about this before or, wow i'm really uh, interested in this perspective that i'd not thought about before on games or on the interplay between games and culture and mechanics or whatever we are not making that up, right? <laughs> like we often have truly uh, transformational, uh, I would say, intellectual uh, moments on the show that are that are you know we're not faking that, right? Um, for me, part of the the joy of academic work is learning new th perspectives and new things about the world, and not just perspectives in the sense of like someone else is experienced and how they can communicate to that to me, although that's really important as well. But I mean, new methods for understanding the material churn of the universe in front of us. And, uh, you know, we're not alive for very long as, as human beings, you know, we're a pretty short lived species in a general sense. Um, that I would say intellectually, that is the one thing that I find really, truly joyous to do. So, you know, Michael, I want to thank you for coming along with me on this journey of a show where we get to do that. Um, I think it's uh, pretty fun. Pretty good stuff. Mm -hmm. Been good times. Um, it sounds like I'm going to die. But like, what I just said there sounds like, and I, I'm like, and uh, I have a diagnosis to share with you Who all. Like, can't say <laughs> where the road goes. <laughs> Uh, that's not the case. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but I, uh, we, now we have to talk about a book. <laughs> we have to talk about an academic book. Um, because this is not just the third anniversary, um, episode. Mm -hmm. It's an episode of Game Study Study Buddies. Um, your one-stop shop for blah, 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 and all that and whatnot. Um, and we are talking about today Lev Manovich's, um, The Language of New Media. And we did not plan this to be on our third anniversary in the sense of, uh, you know, being like, oh, we need to do a big book, you know, for mm -hmm. uh, for doing it. But I would say that this book is just as important for game studies kind of in a broad sense, but new media studies, certainly, obviously, 
um, in an, you know that kind of big categorical way, just as influential as you know half real has been for game studies or um, cybertext has been for game studies, right? Uh, or Hamlet on the holodeck. You know, I would I would put this up in that kind of you know big pillars where people constantly are referencing it and going back to it as much as any of those other books. Yeah, uh, this is I, I mentioned just a few minutes ago that you know coming into this show I had not had a, a, a sort of designed course of reading in game studies or even new media studies, really, uh, not a broad one, not a seminar. And nevertheless, this book, uh, Manovich's book, was one of the few that I had read before the show. And in fact, as I was reading it, and I'll talk about this when we get there, um, I'm pretty sure I can pinpoint the moment in this book where I became like a new media guy, despite having been trained as a, a guy working in the you know 16th century. So that'll be interesting. That's one of the many uh, types of guy, uh -huh. this new media guy. Uh -huh. j to jump into the book, unless you have any more context mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I mean, I could talk about Manovich and kind of his trajectory and his well, like. Let's background. do that. Okay. Let's do that because I want to. I want to talk about the format of the book, but that's probably better as we get into it. Yeah. So, so before I jump into it, Michael, tell us a little bit about uh, Lev Manovich and the kind of biographical information you've dug up for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just to introduce the, the book, it is the language of new media um, by Lev Manovich. This was published in two thousand one by MIT Press. Am I right on that? Did I mm -hmm. <laughs> did I make yeah, that assumption? Right. Okay, yes. Okay, for yeah, some that's right. I had like that moment of doubt. Uh, Manovich. What did you think you were assuming there? That it was not by MIT Press, even though like this was the era. Like this, this is an MIT Press ass like two thousand one <laughs> book, right? Like this is <laughs> yes, what they yes. were putting out. Like, <laughs> but I was yes. like, are, am I being uh, the hubristic one here now? Um, so anyway, yes, Language and New Media, 2001, uh, MIT Press, Lev Manovich, who is currently a professor of computer science at uh, the Graduate Center at City University, New York. Mm -hmm. um, he is also the founder of the Cultural Analytics Lab there. And just to, because this is going to be relevant uh, for the book itself, I'm going to read uh, some of Manovich's biography off of his Wikipedia page, because the man has done a lot. Uh, and it all kind of uh, flows into his perspective on these things. Manovich was born in Moscow, USSR, where he studied painting, architecture, computer science, and semiotics. After spending several years practicing fine arts, he moved to New York in 1981. His interests shifted from still image and physical 3D space to virtual space, moving images, and the use of computers and media. While in New York, he received an MA in experimental psychology from New York University in 1988, and additionally worked professionally in 3D computer animation from 1984 to 1992. He went on to receive a PhD in visual and cultural studies from the University of Rochester in 1993 under the supervision of Mike Ball. His PhD dissertation, The Engineering of Vision from Constructivism to Computers, traces the origins of computer media relating it to the avant-garde of the 1920s. Um, and, uh, the next paragraph that I won't read fully uh, just sort of lays out the fact that in addition to kind of his scholarly output, Manovich has also participated in like um, sort of art installations, right? Uh, the production of like experimental films and digital films, uh, websites, uh, something called a streaming novel um, and uh, various other kind of like new media art things. So mm -hmm. uh, that's to give you a sense of, of Manovich and you know, what his whole deal is. 
Yeah, I put Manovich kind of in there in the in the long twentieth century, um, uh, you know, trajectory of artist practitioners. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or not? Or I'm sorry, <laughs> theorist practitioners. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I guess also an artist practitioner, but theorist practitioners. You know, these people who are thinking seriously and heavily about the thing that they're doing, and then also doing it at the same time. Right, going all the way back to. I don't know, Wagner, um, uh, <laughs> in that, that kind of mode, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that, that kind of is what this book feels like. And, and maybe, you know, this is a good kind of entree into thinking about the form of the book because the book makes a lot of claims up top about the kind of, uh, the way that it's put together and the way that it makes its argument and kind of makes, um, I don't know, persuasive arguments um, about how these things all fit together. But I find this book to be um, incoherent and not incoherent in, in the sense of un, uh, understandable. It's a very readable book, I think. Um, and, I, and I think that it is a important book in the history of these allied fields for, for specific reasons. You know, I, I think he, uh, that Manovich is very clear about what he's arguing, but incoherent in the sense that it is a lot of different pieces that are all kind of crammed together. Um, and uh, sometimes shifting radically in scale, in the way that they're thinking about a certain object in objects themselves. Um, it, it is purposefully kind of, um, sporadic in that regard. And and there's a reason for that, right? This book cares a lot about montage mm-hmm. um, and it cares a lot about cinema. I would say, honestly, that this is a book on cinema first and new media second, meaning that all of its claims about the way that new media work are either centered in the fact that new media, broadly construed, is inheriting something from cinema or is reversing or uh, getting at something that's kind of been sublimated within cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is a book that if you if if you try to extract cinema from it, none of the argumentation would make sense. Yes. Um, and so it's it's kind of cut together like a montage in that regard, right? It's, it's using the formal characteristics of cinema plus something else, you know, plus this kind of uh, new media or computational logic to it to do it. So when I say inco- incoherent, not nonsense, right? But incoherent, it truly in the sense of uh, we jump domains really regularly in this book. And I think that that... Um, if you're in the flow of that is very readable, but if you're trying to trace some of the core claims being made across the whole book, it becomes very difficult to do that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this is, I, it's impossible for me to overstate the impact that this book has had on a bunch of different fields. So um, I think the book can take the criticism probably just a little bit, right? Like, I I don't feel like I'm being unfair to the book here um, because obviously so many people find it so useful. But when you're when you're focusing in on it in the way that we do in the show and we're kind of tracing it moment to moment, um, it really is interesting how it doesn't hold together quite as much as you might think when people talk about the monolith that is the language of new media, this Mm -hmm. kind of book, you know, thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, though, Michael. Do you feel differently? No, I mean, I I had a very similar response uh, in that you are correct. The different chapters here um, are very like this. This actually uh, for the listener will, I think, be helpful. Here are the chapters by by name. Uh, Chapter one, what is new media? Chapter two, the interface. Chapter three, the operations. Chapter four, the illusions. Chapter five, the forms. Chapter six 
what is cinema? And so this this book is, um, you know, 400 pages long with notes, uh, which is pretty hefty, uh, it, all things considered. And those are really big uh, ideas to structure your chapters after. And I'm not saying that the, that the book, you know, fumbles this, but it gives you an idea of what this thing is trying to do, which is talk about a like this thing called new media which turns out to have a lot of differentiation uh within itself um but it is nevertheless like trying to grapple with this whole kind of emergent uh thing right wave of cultural production uh and in order to do so it has to kind of swing sort of broad and archetypal in in the way that it's thinking right so interface mm -hmm. operations illusions and forms uh but this also means that the individual chapters kind of uh will talk about you know the thing that they are trying to talk about the interface let's say or the operations um and then the next chapter, while you can kind of, you, if you are reading sort of carefully or actively, you can see like the previous chapter behind it, right? You can see how the argument that we made uh, just before this is kind of buying us what's going on here. Um, but also a lot of the time, it just feels kind of like, okay, now we're going down a slightly different path. And I'm going to point out the connections where where the kind of they're happening. But really, like, this is a chapter that happens to be about, uh, you know, cinema, uh, whereas the prior chapter talked a lot about sort of literary narrative. Um, and sometimes those things will meet, right? We'll talk about literary and cinematic narrative kind of side by side, but often it'll feel like we're diving into a whole bunch of different other domains uh, and kind of seeing what new media gets us out of those when we when we run our precepts through it. Um, and it, as you said, it, it can be incoherent, not in a, a like, I don't understand this way, but in a kind of like, I, I am talking about so much at once, or I have to talk about so many things. Um, that in terms of, uh, it, it can feel overwhelming, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like the book can feel very expository in a way, uh, that, you know, it is not, uh, fun to read if you're trying to read it at a, at a clip in the way that I was at least. Um, but I think is probably a lot better. And this is, this is, I think another, um, thing of the times, right? Uh, I remember in sort of the 90s and the early 2000s, there was this bizarre thing that happened where people suddenly uh, were would talk about academic books. I'm talking about this as if I were there, but really this is me like reading reviews of these books coming out at the time that the books were being published. Um, and this is a thing that also we, uh, gets, Zizek is talked about in this way a lot, where uh, the arguments are written to be like a CD-ROM where you're just kind of like scanning, right? You're like the little beam, the little laser that is like scanning the CD-ROM and you're like picking out the things that you need at any given point in time. Uh, and that's kind of what this feels like, uh, this sort of strange vogue for writing um, very lengthy expository arguments um, that also don't necessarily hook into each other in a kind of one-to-one -one way, uh, but can kind of exist in parallel. And this also means that you get a lot of sort of repeated tidbits or repeated claims and things like that. Yes, there's a huge amount of repeated information and repeated claims in this book. And I think that a lot of that, I, I think you're right. I, I've never encountered the CD-ROM <laughs> logic thing before, but there is this kind of like hypertexty cleverness to this book in that um, disparate pieces link into other pieces, but 
But <laughs> when you do that in hypertext, you can just like click on the link, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, you know, whatever new media, and that's a link, and you click it, and it takes you to the new media thing. So you don't really have to repeat any information. When you do that in a linear book, you can't. I mean, I guess one way of doing it is just to create a citation to your own book and say, go read this other page. That's that's what but, Bolter and Grusin do, right? In yeah, like oh yeah, the year true. before yeah, this, yeah. they have they, literally, and they are like, this is these are our hyperlinks. And then in the margins, it's like, hey, remember this claim? We made it back on this other page. You can flip back to look at it there. <laughs> yeah, Manovich does not do that. Manovich does similar repetition of argument or kind of refreshing of argument, but just will rewrite the whole argument. Um, and so... I would say probably 80 pages of this book are rewriting of things that happen, which uh, on on one hand, like, because I sat and read this in, in a couple sessions, right? Um, and so when you do it that way, very annoying to read, right? Because you're like, yeah, okay, all right, like, we got Vertov again, okay? But on the other hand, extremely helpful if you were reading this in... Um, excerpt or if you're segmenting certain chapters out or whatever, right? It's it's a book that I totally get now, having looked at the whole book, why people teach just chapters of it because mm -hmm. they, they really do kind of excerpt well and play well. And that makes sense why you would write a book that way. Um, I will say the, the other thing that matters here a lot that, that's intersecting with a lot of the things that we're talking about is that uh, Manovich was really involved in kind of internet and new media theory circles in the 90s, in the early 2000s, and probably still is. I don't really know. Um, I don't really keep up with that, like, universe as much anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, in the, what is it, in the acknowledgments for this book says that um uh, well so so first you know this is a preface for what's going on in the book um gives us all the hardware that this book was written on oh i is, forgot about this this is so fascinating actually it's i kind of good i'm i think i'm gonna put it in my book i was gonna say <laughs> I, I think we should do this i think this should have become standard <laughs> yeah I, I agree i was like yeah it's actually kind of good so yeah let me read that so ri written on or actually i'll just read it the same way that manovich puts it in the acknowledgments word processor microsoft word Web browser, Netscape Navigator, Internet Explorer. Favorite search engine, www.hotbot.com. Uh, favorite moving image format, QuickTime. HTML editor, Netscape Communicator, Macromedia Dreamweaver. Uh, OS, Windows 98. Hardware, Sony PCG505FX laptop. Really future forward there. And uh, mobile phone, Nokia. Mm -hmm. uh, but not a Nokia, uh, no uh, model, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but but I really like that. I really like, um, you know, kind of putting forward what what are, what is the weird little hardware and software constellation that, pro that produced this object. Um, but the other thing, the thing, the reason I brought this up uh, is that also in the acknowledgments, uh, Manovich writes this. I'll just read it because it's um, the whole context is important. Although significant parts of this book have been written anew, I've drawn on material from a number of previously published articles. Sometimes only part of an article made it into the final manuscript. In other cases, parts ended up in different chapters of the book. In yet other cases, a whole article became the basis for one of the sections. In the following list, I cite the articles that were used as material for the book. Many of them were reprinted and translated into other languages. Here I list the first instance of publication in English. Also, it has been my practice for a number of years to post any new writing I do to NetTime and Rhizome, two important internet email lists devoted to discussions of new media art, criticism, and politics. This practice enabled me to receive immediate feedback on my work and also provided me with a community interested in my work. Most articles accordingly appeared in these two email lists before being published in more traditional print venues such as journals and anthologies or in internet journals. 
and I think that's actually really important. Um, I think that if I today tweeted out my whole book and then afterward assembled that into a book, it would look it would look uh, uh, warped by that, mm-hmm. right? It, it would it, that would have an impact on the form of argumentation, the way it happened, right? With with uh, Twitter, you have to kind of sloganize things, and so it would definitely lend toward more big idea, concept, slogany stuff that would then maybe get uh, cited in in different kinds of ways than you would if you were just straight up writing a book. And I think that that you have to read the language of new media within the idea that. This is something that has been assembled kind of Lego-like out of a lot of pre-existing work that had been written for the internet, had been written for the email listserv, Mm -hmm. right, of a particular community of thinkers. And so, you know, I think, and this is just pure speculation because I was not there and, uh, you know, obviously not reading these things in the late 90s. But it seems like some of the places where Manovich has to do the hardest work, so for example, constantly telling us about the history of cinema in this book, mm-hmm. that is ostensibly about new media, but really 50% of it is words about how, what cinema is and where it came from and how it works. Um, it, it feels like that you have to write about what cinema is and where it came from, maybe for a group of visual artists who are not cinema makers, right? Or theorists who are not particularly in cinema studies in that in that way, right? And so it feels like there's a stealth audience for this book that is not necessarily you and I, Michael, in the year 2021, but is in fact an email list of pretty particular people who are interested in very uh, specific questions. And Manovich is kind of shoring up their knowledge, um, in the way that this thing is put together. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's hard. To, the material conditions under which this book was produced cast a long shadow over it that that I think you can feel if you read it straight through, mm-hmm. you know, in the year 2021 or after. Um, did you ever participate in NetTime or Rhizome or like Empire or any of those things? No, I did not do that. Hmm. And, and you were not part of the uh, academic blogging community of of 2006 to 2015. No. Or maybe you were a little bit. I wish, I guess, yeah. I, I was very, very marginal there. I came to that pretty late uh, and didn't do a whole lot. But I think that's, in, in a way, that's how you and I met. So I guess it would be disingenuous to say that I was not part of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the only reason I ask is that, you know, you can read books by people who got, uh, you know, kind of made a name for themselves during that time, too. And it's a bunch of blog posts, mm-hmm. right, kind of crammed together. And I think a lot of the time this book feels like a bunch of really interesting emails and smart emails that were sent to a group of people who really cared about the the topics they're in. Um, this is, again... Uh, maybe one last thing to say, kind of big, broad framing before we talk about specific chapters is this is why I think we know lots of ideas out of the language of new media, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone tell me uh, this is the argument of the language of new media, mm-hmm. like as a book. But I do know lots of words for right? transcoding. Um, uh, what is it uh, like the computer, computer uh, layer and the cultural layer? Those are the big yeah, ideas. Uh, those two in transcoding, I think, are the big ones that come out of this book. Yes. Yeah. And so I know all about those things. Right. Those, those are things that get talked about regularly in all kinds of different kind of uh, new media contexts. But no one has ever walked me through the argument of this book in a broad sense. I've never read anyone kind of doing a long form summary of it in a book. 
Um, I actually just reread Alexander Galloway's The Interface Effect, which spends a whole chapter on this book and does not lay out what the whole book does. And I think part of the reason for that is so much of it is telling us about what cinema studies is up to or telling us about what the medium of uh, film does Mm -hmm. in particular. Um, And I think a lot of people who are writing about this in an actual new media context don't really care that much about that. Um, they would go to cinema studies, I think, if they wanted to learn more about it. But anyway, that's all to say. So that's a big, weird kind of framing part of it um, to give people big ideas about what I, what, what I, and 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 what you, Michael, think about the book in a, in a general sense. Um, but uh, let's talk about the individual chapters. I, I think that this will be less of a uh, blow by blow simply because of what we just talked about there's a lot of repetition of information and there's a lot of kind of historical walking through you know this happened and then this happened and this happened and this happened and that's where hci comes from mm-hmm. um i'm not particularly interested in walking through that here but i think we can give people the big broad structures of what's happening in the chapter michael what is up in well, actually, there's all kinds of stuff even before we get to chapter one, right? I was going to say, I want to mention just there's a prologue to this book. Yes. And it is possibly the most unhelpful prologue you could possibly produce for your book. I, do, I don't like this. This is a decision made, and I totally get as an artist why you would do this, but I I don't like it. Yeah, so uh, what, what uh, Manovich does... Um, and again, like this is it's his book. He can do this. Like, I just think it's unhelpful because he takes uh, stills from uh, Man with a Movie Camera, the experimental. Uh, is it 1920 something? 1921? Uh, uh, 29. 29. Uh, Ukrainian Soviet film. Uh, and he uh, counter uh, poses these stills uh, against captions that are quotes from later in the book where the him talking about uh, some aspect of cinema or even some aspect specifically of this film um, is just like a quote from that and then a still from the movie. And that's it. And the reason that this is just a, a bad way, I think, to have a prologue for your book is that it only makes sense if you are intimately familiar already with the argument of the book and man with a movie camera. Uh, specifically and sort of like the entire I don't know I mean you you have to have some sort of like precondition right you have to know something about cinema studies for this to make any sense at all Uh, so it's it's a very strange thing to lead with yeah I it it feels like uh, it feels very artful um, and man with a movie camera is showing up constantly Mm -hmm. all the way through this by the way i don't think ukrainian i think actually russian Uh, okay but 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 someone else can can check me on that um but uh it's showing up constantly so i understand why you might do this and in fact it it probably i wonder where this showed up in the production process because i can imagine you know manovich puts the whole manuscript together is rereading through it during you know uh, the publication process and goes oh my gosh this really is kind of a book about man with a movie camera um and maybe i should do something interesting with that but but yeah he kind of claims at the beginning that it is a uh, a visual index of some of the book's major ideas and i read through this at the beginning and actually went back and read through it at the end and i don't think that is necessarily true um maybe this does a lot for you does not do a lot for me um, doesn't sound like it does a lot for you, uh, Michael. I mean, I'm not a, this is a thing that I'm going to say multiple times throughout this episode, but like, I'm not a cinema studies person. So it's like, I know what you're talking about in kind of a theoretical sense, but I have no grappling points here. Um, 
And so again, like as a prologue, this is not very helpful to me. It might have been an interesting epilogue, though. Uh, but then it brings us into the introduction, uh, which is also pretty interesting because that's where Manovich kind of lays out his biography growing up in in uh, Moscow in the USSR and kind of his college experiences. He talks about taking a computer science course. And I think I can't remember the exact number of years, but I think, you know, for his first entire year of taking this computer science course, they do not actually work with computers. They're writing out all of their programs uh, by hand in notebooks and the professor is grading them by hand. Uh, and then he talks about, you know, he, he always was interested in art and he talks about coming to the U.S. and kind of getting into commercial animation and things like that. And then this folds into kind of this narrative about uh, the transition from industrial to information economies post-1950. And uh, then this lands us at the basic sort of like starting point for this book and sort of the, 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 the program that Manovich is laying out for himself, which is that since uh, we began transitioning to this kind of information economy, since uh, computerization of culture became more and more prevalent uh, since new media started popping up in our everyday lives. The majority of academic writing on these things has been, what are we going to do with them? It has been speculative. That is the word that he uses that, uh, you know, most of the writing on new media is speculative. It's what types of stories are we going to tell? What sorts of cool things are people going to make? Uh, and we, we've read books like this, right? Uh, Janet Murray's Hamlet on the Hollow Deck actually, I think is a great example because that is entirely a book of sort of like speculation about the types of stories you might tell, uh, in, in kind of digital formats. Um, and Manovich wants to do something, uh, very different. He wants to quote, understand the logic of the language of new media. That's from page seven. And he therefore employs a method that he calls uh, digital materialism, uh, which is, quote, I scrutinize the principles of computer hardware and software and the operations involved in creating cultural objects on a computer to uncover a new cultural logic at work. So the, the kind of counterfactual, in fact, in, in one might even say almost a speculative premise that he sets out here at the beginning uh, is what would happen if during the kind of you know, birth of cinema, um, whenever we kind of want to peg that happening, instead of people writing about uh, cinema and being like, oh, what are we going to do with with the moving image and sound and whatever? Uh, what if that was being historically uh, kind of integrated into whatever prior knowledge came before? And so from Manovich's perspective, you know, there's this whole field of cinema studies and also, you know, uh, uh, literary theory and all of these other cultural forms, right? Visual art is, is especially important here um, from the Renaissance onward. And Manovich is saying, well, instead of speculating uh, with what might happen with new media, what if we took new media and we tried to put it within the context of what has come before it, right? What if uh, we were specifically looking at how uh, computerized media carry forward uh, assumptions, ideas, or forms from prior media, 
uh, but also how does new media break those assumptions and break with those forms and allow people to do things that are that are like sort of different and distinct and unique to new media and what are the consequences of that not in the future but like at the present moment right what is happening to us as we uh continually use more and more of these technologies and interface with more of these media objects it's interesting what gets to count right i mean and i think that's maybe worth something uh saying here at the top because you know lisa nakamura's book Cybertypes is not out we actually talked about this before we recorded because we were checking some some dates right so lisa nakamura's work is out in the world but but Cybertypes uh, comes out in 2002 but uh the edited volume um race in cyberspace that that she co-edited uh comes out in the year 2000 and to my mind a huge amount of that style of working right nakamura in that book is citing all these people from the late 90s um, who are doing this work of what what happens when certain cultural forms and cultural frameworks and uh, uh, when those interface with, well, interface is maybe a weird word, when they uh, um, are replicated within the interfaces of digital culture, mm-hmm. right? So um, what happens when the website, the, the cultural logic of a website adopts a cultural logic of, you know, a racialized system, you know, within the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that doesn't show up in this book, right? Mm-hmm. What, whatever Manovich is interested in, it's not that. It's some other material historical form that, that doesn't quite hit whatever those cultural logics are, but they're different ones. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the only reason I say that is not to, like, take Manovich down and say, oh, Manovich has done a bad job or whatever, right? I don't, that, that's not the point here. But the point that I want to make is that um, this is a book that is giving us big, broad, universal, and, and I mean that in a, in a specific sense, universal kind of ways of thinking about new media. Um, and when we kick up to universality, right, when we get to big, broad ways of talking about the relationship between hardware and software and then software and the, and the human, um, what falls out in that discussion is important to think about, mm-hmm. right? You know, in the same way that we've talked about some, you know, people like Huizinga and Kawa, right? Or, or even um, in uh, um, uh, Cybertext, right? The Arseth book, right? Mm-hmm. What falls out when we talk about systems that create the world? Right. Um, and including the hardware that creates the world is important to notice. Right. Like I'm not a Deridian, but sometimes you got to be a good Deridian. Right. <laughs> sometimes sometimes you got to find the uh, the the absence that constructs the presence. Mm-hmm. Right. And you got to be attentive to that. And, it, and it's important, I think, when in reading this book, and I, I certainly felt that way, especially given the, the works that we've engaged with here on Game Study Study Buddies over the past six months. Um, what doesn't show up here at the beginning of or, or in the beginnings of the theorization of new media is very important to me, um, especially when it starts talking about the representational layer of these logics. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that when we get here. Um, you'll notice that we've been saying the word new media a lot, and you might not know what that is. <laughs> well, luckily, um, the first listener? chapter tells us. Uh-huh. Well, but I also, I'll be honest with you, right? I use the word new media all the time. And uh, obviously I've inherited that from a cultural context. But, you know, I think it's, I'm, I'm glad that Manovich here at the beginning says, you know, not just the first chapter was new media, but just gives us a list of what new media things are. You know, so he says, uh, this is on page eight, um, all areas of new media. That's what he's talking about. Um, so this is the list he gives. Websites, virtual worlds virtual reality, 
multimedia, computer games, interactive installations, computer animation, digital video, cinema, and compu human-computer interfaces. And so new media is big, mm -hmm. right? It is massive, and you'll notice that cinema is in there, Yeah, right? And what we're going to hear over this book over and over again is that cinema is kind of the, the predominant cultural logic, you know, thing, media object for the 20th century. You know, he, he says that over and over again, that it dominates the 20th century in our way of thinking about the world and life and all these different things. Um, and yet, it is still a part of new media. It is absorbed into, and the the um, the language of new media has to speak to cinema for um, Manovich in order to kind of work or make sense. And so, um, you know, I, I think, especially because virtual worlds, he, he kind of defines as like 3D space that you can walk around in. So think about something. Second Life doesn't exist yet, but think about like Second Life or walking around in World of Warcraft. That's what he means there. Um, but, you know, so everything from, you know, in 2021, navigating Twitter to going into Final Fantasy XIV to uh, using Spotify, that's all new media. Mm -hmm. And this is a book that is a theorization of some broad ways of touching and talking about all of those things at one time. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big, big, it was a big task in the year, you know, 2000, 2001, still a big task in the year 2021. And I think that there, when reading this book, there are some things that historically have just kind of passed through that I don't think are true anymore. Um, and so, you know, th this book gets treated as a kind of universal theorization mechanism for new media, but I think we need to be attentive and we need to be good Lev Manoviches here, right? Mm -hmm. That hardware and software change in the way that we interface with those things change. And what are the qualities of difference that, that show up here? I think that in, in 2021, if you are going to this book and just kind of popping concepts out and applying them and not thinking about the way that he proves those concepts true, you're making a mistake because... He, he is grounding all of his work in material analysis of, of digital materialism. And you, I think you, if you're using his concepts from this book, you have to kind of do the, the translational work of exactly how the, that thing is showing up again um, in, in the work now. So that would be my advice for using this book and engaging with this book uh, for people who are interested in it here. But sorry, I'm talking about the introduction for a very long time. Michael, what's New Media? Chapter one. Well, uh, the easiest way to talk about New Media, or at least what Manovich means by New Media, uh, New Media is what happens when a whole bunch of stuff becomes accessible on the computer. And I don't phrase it that way to, to you know, make light of it, but to sort of put it kind of straightforwardly. Uh, new Media for Manovich is a consequence of computers becoming widely kind of publicly available, right? They're, they're moving out of uh, the really specialized role that they've had in society thus far. Uh, the internet has come around and computers turn out to be capable of simulating or re-representing other types of media really, really easily. So like a photograph, right, can be digitized. Film can be digitized. So can music. So can a painting. Uh, all of these other sort literature, of course, uh, you know, books, uh, e-texts, all of the kind of uh, prior, he, I think at one point he calls the computer a meta medium because it is so good at taking prior sort of particular media formats from history and uh, making sort of simulacra of them through digitization. And then one of the consequences of this 
is that once the kind of, uh, you know, uh, particularities and physicalities of these media have been uh, sublimated or evaporated by the process of digitization, uh, they become interoperable with one another in extremely strange ways. And uh, you can, you can, uh, when a photograph is taken with a camera, and it gets digitized in Photoshop, it becomes uh, on the level of the computer, right to the computer, uh, a bunch of binary code that can be rendered intelligible to the computer through certain mathematical operations. On the user end, you have Photoshop, which allows you to edit that photograph, but you are editing that photograph in a way that you would not edit an actual physical photograph where you're doing some sort of, you know, like um, double exposure, or you've got some sort of mat that you're, you know, working in as you're doing the exposure, all of the kind of camera tricks that you would actually do. Uh, when you're working with Photoshop, you're telling the computer to do certain types of math equations to the data that is stored that then makes the uh, data render differently visually to an observer, a human observer. Um, so new media becomes the way of talking about how not only like what are what are the things that computers are doing, right? What is new with the computers, but how do computers themselves make new uh, older formats? And what happens also when those older formats kind of become untethered from uh, the, the strictures that have kind of defined them up until that point? Mm hmm. Yeah, the, the, the kind of pithy phrase here that gets used, I think it's on 27, is that media become programmable. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these different media formats uh, enter into that kind of mathematical relationship or mathematically kind of replicated within um, a computational system, and then you can do stuff to it. Um, and, and you can make it talk to each other. He uses the example of this thing called WaxWeb. Unfortunately, and, and, you know, this is perhaps not shocking to anyone, but unfortunately, this book talks a lot about different pieces of art and very few of them are accessible now. Mm. Uh, art police. Yeah. Heard you're trying to access the forbidden art. I know. Um, so it's a bummer. I was able to find a few of the things, the, the, the piece that comes up later, the forest, there's like some video of, mm -hmm. and there's, there's video of a few things that show up, but, but really hard to kind of follow the work here in that regard. Um, and really demonstrates, you know, why preservation efforts of places like rhizome.org, why that's so important, because there's a whole generation of uh, intellectual production, right, and thought and, and really careful art criticism that's like not, you know, you kind of can't do the work. You can't follow along because you have no idea how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, sometimes there's not even screenshots, or if they are, they're 240 <laughs> pixels wide, right? But uh, anyway, that's to say, but he talks about this thing called Blair, uh, by someone named Blair. I didn't write the first name down, but it's called Wax Web. And it's a piece of art that's kind of a narrative um, cinema, you know, piece, kind of linear, you know, in the way that we would think about that. It plays out in time, but you can manipulate it and you can go into different scales. And so I think you can zoom into it the way he describes it is makes it difficult for me to exactly explain it. But the idea is you're watching a film and you can like hit the zoom in button and you can watch the screenplay happen on the screen. Right. And you can uh, zoom out and there gives you a different scale. And so it creates this kind of interoperability where the cinematic form is attached to all these other possible scales and forms of, uh, of the artwork, and you can kind of bounce back and forth through them using this kind of attachment capability of the computer, that it can link certain parts of 
uh, of of disparate objects together with one another and do stuff to them. So, um, you know, cool. It sounds like a cool piece. But um, yeah, basically, this argue this this chapter is laying out how this all happened um, and uh, what some of the effects are. This is also where um, cultural layer and computer layer show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you if you want to talk about that since that's such a big concept out of this uh, out of this book. I mean, it's uh, you know what I just alluded to, which is that on the mm-hmm. when the example of editing something in Photoshop, right, where uh, on the computer layer. That's all mathematics. That's all binary. Uh, And then that gets rendered uh, intelligible on the monitor of the computer. And that's where kind of the cultural layer comes into existence. The cultural layer being uh, how does a, a, a thing, the other thing that is important, actually, that we should highlight that comes up again and again is the innovation of the GUI. Right. The mm-hmm. the graphical user interface uh, and, mm-hmm. and the GUI. Yes. Uh, and so the, you know, prior to uh, uh, GUIs existing. Right. Uh, computers were just like command lines. They were terminals. And so uh, the GUI ends up making uh, like the, the metaphor of the desktop. Right. Is kind of a great example of what Manovich means when he talks about the cultural layer. Uh, because it puts a kind of cultural form, it, it it layers it over the operations of the computer in such a way that um, does two things. One, it abstracts the user from the machine itself, right? Like you are kind of a level up. You're not interfacing directly um, with the command line anymore. Uh, but also, weirdly enough, paradoxically maybe uh by removing the user from more direct interaction with the machine uh they are actually enabled in other ways because this means that they don't have to learn how to type all these things into the command line and all of the tips and tricks for that it means that you have this clear kind of graphically represented desktop with sort of familiar things like folders and a trash bin and uh you know this is a little like this looks like a little piece of paper with the the corner turned so that's a document and that sort of thing uh all of those symbols all of the things that uh, uh make that legible as a system that is the cultural layer uh the the cultural thing uh the sort of standard uh n- n- standard is not the right word but uh the thing that makes the computer seem like something other than a large calculator, <laughs> right? That makes it seem like you're doing something other than a, a whole bunch of math uh, that makes it kind of accessible in that way. That's your cultural layer. Yeah. And the um, I, I think something that's really interesting to me is I've seen this adapted in the game studies, right? As a, as a kind of replication of like a culture and mechanics binary or like a, 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 a mechanics and aesthetics, uh-huh. right? Um, that the computer layer is equivalent in games to like the, the operations of the game mechanics operating. Mm-hmm. And I, I would caution people not to do that. I don't think that that exactly lines up. Or if that's happening, I think you need to make that a little bit more clear, argue that a little bit more clearly, because that's not what Manovich is saying, right? No. Like, uh, you're, you, <laughs> uh, game mechanics are very readable, in fact, right? Like, they are familiarizations in some ways. Um, and so, you know, the, the real computer layer is actually beneath mechanics. And, and like, in the real world, right, like, in our world, it w- the equivalent thing would be, I say the real world, it's all the real world, but um, outside of computerization, maybe. Um, the equivalent would be like, 
um, you know, we have basketball and we have the rules of basketball, but beneath that is physics, right? Yes. And, and <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's that's the equivalent, right? Is that that if you're playing League of Legends or whatever, and you are talking about the 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 skins of the characters as aesthetics or or the social system around that as aesthetics and you're talking about the mechanics as the computer layer that's inaccurate mm-hmm. uh, it would be the operations of computation that are happening even below what can be recognized as the abilities of the character that is what's happening in the computer layer and i'm seeing those things get flattened out and i would really caution people to do that because that's not exactly what manovich is talking about here yeah ultimately the thing about the computer layer that makes it the computer layer is that the user does not have to be aware of it in any way for them to to use the object and and in some ways it it's it's not even just doesn't have to be aware it's it's the fact that this will hide some things mm-hmm. from the vast majority of users right mm-hmm. and i mean this is what kind of uh uh i don't know verifies or or allows him to make the leap that he makes at the very end of the chapter um, this is on page 48. He says, from media studies, we move to something that can be called software studies, from media theory to software theory. Um, and so, you know, quite specifically, he is saying at the end of the day, because of the way that this process works out and because of the way this kind of um, layering process occurs, um, we end up, for, for the vast majority of the theorizations that we can be doing about the way we interact with um, uh, new media, we really are talking about the way we interact with software. And this is where Manovich goes. I mean, the Manovich's next kind of big monumental book for the field is Software Takes Command, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit less than a decade later, um, which is just an analysis of the software that uh, enables us to interact with computer systems. And I think like Photoshop is a big chapter in there. I'm blanking on on all the chapters, but the, but kind of each of those chapters there are case studies to my memory. It's been a long time since I've looked at that book, but um, each are kind of case studies of big software suites that allow you to do stuff and, and how that works and how it's operating on the computer layer. So um, hugely influential, hugely important ideas. But um, I think if you want to use those things, you, you either need to... to talk about the way that you're transforming them into something in game studies or um you, you should really be engaged with with how manovich makes the argument here because that that really does matter a lot mm-hmm. uh, anything else in chapter one well i promised uh earlier at the beginning of the episode that i would note the point where i think i became like a new media guy and it's in this chapter uh near the end uh he starts talking about how cognitive psychologists uh, of the moment in which he is, is writing, right? So the late nineties, early two thousands and kind of, you know, that whole kind of postmodern period, uh, cognitive psychologists, he quotes a whole bunch of them, like, you know, Lakoff and Johnson and folks like that, uh, and notes that when they are describing the operations of the human mind, uh, seemingly, without really recognizing the significance of doing so they describe how the mind works as if it were a computer right like recalling things from a database and and so on and so forth and manovich uh puts this into kind of a tradition of a, a tendency really uh of people to see new media as somehow externalizing uh the the actual operations of the human mind um and he's right about this you know if you go back to uh the birth of uh 
like the the recorded music industry or really the recorded sound industry because there's always already new by um gosh i can't remember her name but anyway that's the name of the book uh it's not gittleman right yes it is it's lisa gittleman is that Um, lisa gittleman yeah her work is great yeah so like for instance right uh uh, gittleman's book is about how when the recorded sound industry kind of came to be uh people thought like oh this is going to be great for like recording speeches this is what everyone's going to want to use it for and it turns out that people really liked recording music And that was really unexpected. But anyway, um, (laughs) the other thing that is happening then is that like once uh, recording media like that, sonic recording media become uh, more common in in day to day life, people start thinking about their own minds, right, about sort of the human brain or sort of the human consciousness as itself a kind of like sound recording mechanism um, in ways that are sort of isomorphic with the ways that they see uh, wax cylinders and early records being pressed. Uh, so the, the reason this makes me a new media guy is because, uh, again, it's like this, you know, 500 level practicum and I am a, <laughs> and it's on new media and, in like digital rhetoric and things like this. And I am a 16th century specialist, uh, sitting there like trying to think like, what on earth do I even do with this? And I hit this point and I realized something very interesting, which is that in the early modern period, um, after the kind of, you know, uh, spread of the printing press and uh, that that whole thing, right, you have suddenly kind of uh, books and pamphlets being printed at a, at a rate um, which would have been unthinkable before and they're much more accessible than they would have been. Uh, you also get woodcuts. Uh, and this is its own interesting kind of uh, sub-discipline in this field is like looking at how engravings were made um, and then how they were used in various uh, uh, places and, you know, how... Uh, in in very much like your modern meme where you go through and you like spackle over the text and rewrite over it, like how they did this with woodcuts. So I have all of this stuff in my head. And one of the things that has always been very interesting to me about this is that occasionally um, you will see woodcuts that have like dialogue captions, like something like a contemporary comics panel, you know, like when Garfield speaks and he has like the little air bubble over his head. Um, and mm-hmm. that signifies that he's not speaking out loud, right? That this is sort of the cat's interior monologue. But when John speaks, it's like an air bubble with like a pointed tail toward his mouth that shows that he's speaking verbally. That stuff did not exist in the early modern period. And so when characters in woodcuts speak, uh, there is, it, it looks like very much like a word bubble, um, with like letter, like, you know, text in it, but the actual form that it takes is a, uh, paper banner. Uh, right. I definitely thought you were going to say it was going to be a smaller woodcut, <laughs> yes, like a smaller <laughs> iconographic woodcut. Well, but that's you see, that's what it is, right, is that it's a sort mm-hmm, of yeah, different yeah. iconography thing. And it demonstrates the, the extent to which, uh, you know, for for the the person looking at this woodcut to understand that this is like speech being said, it doesn't appear as kind of like, you know, a bubble in the air. It appears as a physical object, as either a, a piece of paper or some other type of textile with text printed on it. So you have a printing of text on a printing of text. Uh, and I, I have always found that really fascinating. And that kind of became the spark for me starting to think about um exactly how new media were impacting, you know, like early modern uh, uh, cognitive ecologies or whatever you want to call them. What's so fascinating about this is that that uh, Manovich is saying, you know, if 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 our brains work in X way, 
and the the media that we uh, uh, engage with, right, also works in X way, then that kind of means that the brain gets externalized, that thought mm-hmm. gets externalized, right? Mm-hmm. And that means that it can kind of be interoperable with itself, right? So like when I read something or when I, um, I don't, you know, play a video game, right? Those things can speak the same kind of programmatic language to one another, which is how I can learn things from a video game, right? This is, this is how um, information enters into my head. And so, like, the question there, like, where that takes Banovich is just like, yeah, isn't that interesting? That's important. Anyway, so that means software matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, in the, and for me, right, I mean, I, I have a whole chapter of this on my book, and I have even more about this kind of working through the way that uh, games education thinks about mechanics and all that kind of stuff. I'm deeply fascinated about this and going back to uh, uh, Guattari's work and all this stuff from the 70s. But th- this is, like, a bombshell important claim, right, that, mm-hmm. like, the the way we interpret things is also the way they work, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like gears that fit into one another. And and again, even in my metaphor, you can hear me doing making the same kind of error or mistake or, or thing, right? Um, and I want to say just just to say, there are people who do not think this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who are deeply um, uh, uh, cautious and and say this is a huge mistake. Alexander Galloway, not to bring him up again, but but probably is the most famous kind of media example right now, who says, you know, essentially uh, that that we are we are analog and the things that we are making are digital. And the more that we try to map the digital onto the analog systems of the world, the more that we are going down a theoretical and political road that is just incorrect. Um, and in fact, will create vastly negative outcomes for us. Because it, it just naturalizes a bunch of things about, for example, capitalism that are maybe bad, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the idea of thinking that, uh, for, for example, if we take the digital, right, the zero and the one, and we begin to say, well, the mind works like a computer. It's, you know, a bunch of uh, pieces of information and lack of information or, or signals and, and lacks of signal. And it looks at the world and interprets things. Well, then that kind of naturalizes, and and this is not Galloway's argument, this is my just kind of simplified argument, it naturalizes something like, yeah, things are just good or bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah, uh, you know, um, it, it, this is either the best thing that's ever happened to a human being mm-hmm. or it's the worst thing that's ever happened to a human being. That, that's it. And that doesn't really make for useful ethical decisions in the world, for example. It doesn't really help you navigate the world that you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and but, you know, if the mind works like a computer, that is a very rational way of approaching things in the universe. And so. Um, there's a little bit of, of the, the, the kind of follow-on argument from this kind of thinking that was happening in the late 90s and continues to today. The follow-on is maybe we should be pretty cautious about the way that we assume and assert that the human mind works like a computer or now what we would say is an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that would be the kind of Newsweek, Newsweekification of the human mind. But anyway, that's a long form. Uh, uh, we, we've traveled through media effects down through the ages, um, um, if you want to hear more about that from me, I've got a book coming out at some point that will, <laughs> that will have a big chapter about it. Um, uh, chapter two, Michael is on the interface. Mm-hmm. What's the interface, Cameron? Well, there's this little movie called Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, this chapter begins with a, um, uh, this kind of move that happens where of looking at the early 1980s and, 
Um, and Menevich says, well, there are kind of two big patterns or two big kind of like pattern making machines that exist in, in the early 80s that kind of set the standards for the future. The one is Blade Runner and one is the uh, graphic user interface, the GUI, the, the Mac OS GUI mm-hmm. of the Macintosh personal computer. And that those two things kind of set the standard for how we will imagine and, and how we end up do uh, actually interfacing, interacting with the um, the technologies of the back half of the 20th century and into the new media period. Um, he works walks us through the history of HCI, human computer interface. Uh, it's really funny here. I like I have always heard HCI's human computer interaction, mm-hmm. um, but uh, maybe that's just wrong. Like maybe that's just like a weird interpretation thing that I've gotten wrong or something like that. But uh, he, basically, this whole chapter is working through um, once standards are set for how we interact with the workings of a computer, then that has lots of impacts on how we do that in the future. Obviously, but then how we deal with um, all kinds of other parts of the computer. So, for example, Mist shows up here, um, and Mist becomes this example of interfacing, but this kind of collapsed interfacing that happens across all kinds of different domains. And so, uh, Mist uh, at one time, all within the same kind of media object, um, mediates cinema, right? Because we're watching linear video, mm-hmm. uh, the printed word. You're doing a huge amount of reading in that, and then the actual navigation of a 2D space that becomes 3D spatialized. Mandovich actually plays pretty fast and loose with video games across this book. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that when we get later on. But uh, but but he's basically saying, you know, he's trying to work through what are the qualities or qualia or or capabilities of. Um, all of these different things happening at one time through a uh, the same interface, right? So in this case, like mouse and keyboard interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the whole chapter, right? The, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like the qualities of interfacing. Yeah, and I would say maybe the the other kind of central point here is that for, and we've alluded to this, is that for Manovich, um, cinema is the the master key to understand our interactions with computers. Uh, so here, like one thing that I think is put forth is that had we not had the development of cinema in the way that it developed, where we could uh, come to understand the idea of a mobile camera that moves around within a scene, shows us different angles on the same scene, but can also, you know, abruptly change what it is showing us. If all of that sort of had not happened, if we had not kind of been acculturated to uh, that form of cinema, uh, then computers and our interactions with them would look very different. Because for Manovich, basically, a computer is like a mobile camera onto nothingness, right? Like there's nothing behind it that we're seeing through it, right? We're only seeing what's being rendered on the screen, but nevertheless... Uh, the ways that we can move between different windows or the ways that we are sort of when we have the mouse in hand, we expect to be able to zoom, to to turn around, to walk forward, to move backward. Um, for Manovich, this is all kind of derived from an almost uh, uh, like I can't think of a of a a vernacular familiarity with the ways that camera cameras can move within the frame of of cinema right Mm -hmm. so yeah that that the the the, there's a kind of inherited um mode 
of how we look at stuff. Yes. <laughs> you know, for, for lack of, like a better mode. And, and, and the thing that he's interested in, and about halfway through the chapter, he starts developing this is that the, the device that allows this to happen is the screen, mm-hmm. which is both a mobile camera. Like you're talking about, you know, this kind of viewport into another world that can go anywhere. So like we can move, I can move my multiple windows around on my screen, right? Implying that this is kind of like a, um, manipulable space that where you can do all kinds of stuff, which is kind of you know a weird thing to think about. I think now, but absolutely is is a kind of big change um, when when that's becoming viable in a thing. But then does this kind of walking backward of like how that came to be, and so like ends up saying weird stuff. He says um, like the the movie screen is a dynamic screen that depicts images changing over time, mm-hmm. and like this is such such a weird thing of like. This is to me where partially the method falls apart uh, of like digital materialism because he's trying so hard to be attentive to the material qualities of something and then the kind of like software or or like content that shows up in, in front of it that obscures it. And here he's letting the content do the obscuring because like the screen of cinema is not, there are no images on the screen of cinema. The screen of cinema is a reflective blanket, essentially, right? Yeah, like, yeah. He talks about the cinema screen as if it were like a, a a light projection screen, right? Or like a CRT or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it, like, that's not actually how a screen works, right? It's just a reflective apparatus. And so there is some, uh, this is part of the strangeness of the book to me and, and partially why it feels incoherent, like disjointed, is I feel like if this were book were produced and written in a different way, there would have been a much longer explanation of the material facts of these things that then allows his system or his, his theory to kind of build off of them. But because of this kind of like chunks of, of um, uh, chunks of chapters kind of be being internally coherent to themselves, they don't really have room to do that. So it ends up making this kind of theorization that I like, I agree with the way that he is talking about the interface, at least conceptually, right? Like, I think all this is right. But then the proof of it gets really wiggly for me. Um, and and uh, something I've learned, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the episode about, uh, you know, what, what we found out about game studies or what we've appreciated about game studies over the past three years. And I will say that something that, that I've really become attentive to is how arguments get proven, um, especially when they are making kind of fundamental claims about how a medium works um because i think you have to do some proof and and here unfortunately i kind of buy the surface argument but i don't buy the proof Mm -hmm. um he also moves into vr here um again it's this really kind of weird maneuver of this uh the book opening with saying hey we've written about new media in such a way that we've always talked about what it could do and not what it does do that's that's maybe bad Anyway, I'm going to talk about VR. <laughs> yeah, like there. So this is another thing that happens throughout this book is that um, Manovich will give you kind of a double argument or a double trajectory. Uh, yes. And so what I just talked about with kind of the screen, right, is one version of this argument where he is tracing historically forward uh, what is the historical development? What is the historical genealogy of the screen? And he starts with... Um, you know, the, the, the Renaissance painter uh, Leon Battista Alberti, who uh, very famously uh, theorizes linear perspective and the, the, the method or sort of the metaphor that uh, Alberti uses is the idea that the painting um, is like a window onto another world. 
right? That, mm-hmm. that it, like when you look at a painting, it should be like looking out a, the actual window in the wall of your house onto whatever is on the other side of that wall or outside or what have you. Um, and if that sounds really obvious to you, then this is the fun part about learning history, right? Is that prior to this point, this is not what people came to paintings for. That's not what people thought paintings needed to do or needed to be. And this is why whenever, you know, those threads uh, that go around on Twitter or whatever, where it's like, can you believe how these medieval artists used to draw babies or cats? Blah? Um, just like rides right up my ass. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> what we need to learn. This, this is my... <laughs> This is uh this is a new segment yeah. uh, called really rides up Michael's ass. <laughs> like what we need to learn, right, is that uh uh visual regimes are historically conditioned and realism itself is is a historically conditioned like uh, a mode of apprehension and blah 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 blah. But yes, so anyway, uh Alberti comes around and he's like, "Hey guys, um I've invented how to draw horizon lines." And that's kind of a game changer. And then that moves into uh, what you were talking about, Cameron, with like the dynamic screen of cinema slash television. Uh, But then that also becomes and this is part of where that like fungibility uh, you you can see the work that fungibility uh, is doing uh, because he connects that to what he calls the interactive screen, which is the radar screen developed by the military. Um, And that is obviously like, you know, more like a television screen than it is like a cinema screen. Uh, but, uh, that's, you know, this one kind of, uh, forward moving historical trajectory. And then he's like, here's the other way of talking about, uh, like the history of the screen, which is the screen and the body. And this is where he goes all the way up to VR, um, starting out again with paintings where the, the painting sits on the wall and you as the viewer can walk around it, can look at it, can leave the room. Uh, the body is very mobile, uh, moving up to cinema where if you want to watch, a movie in the theater, you have to go into this dark room and sit in a chair and you have to be quiet uh, while everyone watches the the thing on the screen, right? Your your body becomes uh, less mobile. And then he talks about kind of early attempts at VR apparatuses uh, where like people are literally being like locked into chairs or, or like having like these uh, massively heavy uh, like binoculars connected to like, C- like old CRT monitors, right? Uh, like hooked onto their heads and, and how they have, how, how difficult it is to move in those situations. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like, that's, I, and I don't know why. I mean, I could speculate as to why we get these two kind of trajectories or these two different histories, right? One is kind of um, a little progressive, a little like neutral, and the other one has some unhappy valences or connotations. And this is actually a thing that I think maybe we should note about Manovich that uh, fell out earlier on, um, is that Manovich is also, I think, trying to resist techno-optimism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the way that is like very, very common at this point in time. And we in, in the Nakamura episode, we talked a lot about that because she was also sort of taking head on uh, the the techno optimism of the late 90s, the early 2000s. Um, and so for Manovich, right, he, he is trying to sort of underscore that uh, there are really bad ways that this technology could go, um, but sort of. That's it, right? He, he doesn't like pursue this particular like way that bad technology might manifest uh it's just kind of brought up as a possibility and then we move on to the next chapter 
Yeah, it's a. I I think that's partially the the kind of deep historicization. I think that is why VR shows up a few times here, even though it's the VR of the early nineteen nineties, the kind of Jaron Jaron Lanier kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the and I think the reason for that is that he is trying so hard to to respond without directly citing people and without you know kind of being um, direct about it, but say everything that new media people claim is like radical and new is just built on top of very traceable structures. Mm-hmm. And if you spend the time to walk from moment to moment, kind of historical development to historical development, you can see how these things are all deeply, deeply related to one another. And you can do a little bit of like, you know, inference work to determine about how the con- your conditions to these things might change and, and, and how the, the future might not be that different from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and really weird, that's actually kind of why it's so, so weird to me that the way that VR shows up in this book is, is that VR so many times looks like the progressive move, and I don't mean progressive as in like politically literary or uh, liberatory, mm-hmm. but uh, progressive in the sense of like, oh, it's one little jump forward that's actually going to matter a whole lot because uh, he says, for example, you know, VR puts you in a space that ultimately does not stick you in front of a, f- a frame or a screen and makes you sit there, right? It allows for exploratory, exploration, deeper engagement, all these different things. And actually what we know about VR now, now that consumer VR is really much more viable than it ever has been in the past, is that no, not really. The best you get with VR is sitting in a like one meter by one meter by one meter cube and then like smashing your hands into other things in your small apartment, right? Mm-hmm. Like I always, anytime anyone has like anything... Um, uh, blue skies to say about VR. I just think about that giant bomb video where Jeff Gersman smashes his hands into a wall, <laughs> <laughs> like at maximum force. And, uh, you know, that's all I need you know, to think about what, what is VR to me? It's hurting yourself in new and novel ways <laughs> in front of image making devices. But anyway, that, that's all to say. I, I, and I don't really think that Manovich is like super blue skies about it. I think it's a very measured, you know, this is how VR legitimately might change our relationship to an imagistic regime. However, I think the actual future that's been produced is somehow even bleaker mm-hmm. than the one that he thought. But uh, anyway, really interesting chapter, really cool. Um, I, I enjoyed reading uh, this one a lot. Um, maybe we can talk about chapter three, The Operations. Yeah, so The Operations. This chapter is about, well, Manovich uh, sort of tries to distill the characteristic things that one does with new media down to three possible options. Um, I tend to be very skeptical of attempts to, like, uh, distill anything down to, like, three handy things, Um, but Mm -hmm. I don't really have a lot of critique or criticism here if only because i do think that you know these three things do end up being pretty useful um and i think you know they're they're probably things that uh if you wanted to be a good manovician and update this chapter you would definitely want to look at how a lot of this stuff has expanded or sort of shifted uh but the three techniques here are what he calls selecting compositing and teleaction uh, and selecting is interesting because uh, the entire time I was trying to write my notes for this chapter, I kept calling it sampling because that's what we call it now. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Like he he's and, and that's not, you know, a knock against Manovich, but there's this weird thing that happens where he is when he talks about selecting uh, what he means is that, you know, rather than so the producer in new media, rather than 
drawing something new each time they need it or uh, drawing something unique for each job that they have or composing something new for each song that they're putting together, uh, they will select uh, something that pre-exists, something that is pre-made, either a template that they made themselves or a template that is publicly available, an asset that they will pull from a library. Uh, if you're doing something visual right, you will pull in some stock photos or stock uh, footage, and that will all be worked into kind of your, your final product. And obviously, like, the, the the way that this takes off, at about the time that I was uh, first reading this book, actually, I think is when this started hitting, like, the Academy really hard, was talking about sampling from electronic music uh, and how, you know, you can just, like, pull a beat out of one song and then put it in another song with a lot of different stuff around it. And, you know, you got a new song suddenly. Uh, well, this is this is kind of where the citational apparatus, the 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 claim to universality, right? The, the, the claim to this is how we talk about new media most broadly. I think this is a place where it, it hurts Manovich, right? Because Kojo Ishun in 1997 writes more brilliant than the sun. And it is a book that is entirely about this, right? <laughs> like it is fully the, a, a full and massive theorization of this. Um, but, but I, you know, that book either gets treated as like a weird philosophical thing, or it gets treated as a book that's about like culture, you know, like, and I'm making big scare quotes out in my head, you know, in my mm -hmm. hands. Right. It is not a, um, I, I, it is not legible to Manovich's citational apparatus. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, despite it doing all of this work and I would say doing this work better. I think that book is, is amazing. It's one of the best, I, one of the best kind of theoretical texts ever written. Full stop, you know, like hard, hard maneuver. But yeah, absolutely. Right. It, it, it like it, the thing is we, we called it sampling way before 2001. Right. Mm -hmm. And Manovich is just not looking at it. Right. He is willing to um, develop these concepts up from zero. And obviously this is from a much different internet culture. Uh, you know, research is much harder to do. I, I have, uh, I think a little bit of a softer touch around works from, you know, before using Google Scholar, you know, engaging with the devil itself, uh, yeah. Google. But, but right, you know, things like that have really opened up our ability to make uh, connections across disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it anyway, I, 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 I really appreciate you being very friendly to Manovich here on this <laughs> issue, but I, I think that uh, it's a big gap. Um, there's so many people talking about this. Um, uh, in music studies and, and what I would call media studies in a broad sense, maybe not new media studies, but certainly media studies since the 1980s, since sampling becomes a huge kind of form. Mm -hmm. And um, Manovich, because it is not legible within either cinema studies or visual studies or big like theorizations of media, capital T theory, it just never shows up here. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, it's a mistake. Um, but uh, anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt, oh. but, but uh, I think that's an important thing. Well, I mean, the, the other important thing then, uh, right, is that this idea of selecting, and this is probably, you know, one of the reasons that sampling is not the best term for what Mandovich wants to get at, because he is also kind of claiming that this logic of having rather than you know making something bespoke of having a kind of uh, uh, archive or a pool of assets or resources that you're going to uh, pull from at any given time also is uh, related to the logic of like menu selection on a website mm -hmm, let's yeah. say 
Um, and he talks about how basically, you know, the, the logic of identity in new media becomes uh, the selection of one of these potential choices from a, a, a list that's already been given to you, right? Uh, so there is a kind of isomorphism between uh, everything... Everything already exists on online, right? That's actually the, the one of the ways to think about this, that uh, in some ways, uh, all of the all potentiality has already been recorded in the computer in the new media space. And so uh, rather than make something new, you just have to look at what's already there and then pull it out and see what you can do with it. Uh, and so he talks about, again, how this, there's a, you know, kind of emerging logic of identity of selection from a menu, which I think, you know, fits very well with things that Lisa Nakamura talks about in cyber types, um, quite specifically, right? Like what goes into the design of these menus when people are like selecting uh, race or ethnicity and what determines or like what sort of uh, assumptions are being made uh, when certain things show up there and other things do not and so on and so forth. Um, and for Manovich, this is all fitting into a, a, a line of argument we have only, I think, maybe even, I don't think we've touched on it at all. Uh, but this idea that whereas industrial media was about uh, being, you know, it was factory production, things were being made uh, at scale, and they were supposed to be standardized, right? Everyone gets kind of the same product from the same place. Uh, it is that that is industrial logic. Um, new media logic is about uh, taking something that other people may have, but your version has somehow been personalized, that there is some way that your version of that thing and you fit together that someone else and their version of that thing do not because new media allow uh, this kind of personalization. Uh, and so one of the other things that Manovich is kind of, you know, trying to, to bring the damper down on here is uh, this idea of like, oh, there are just going to be like the proliferation of choice, right? There, there's going to be so many choices, everyone will be able to choose what they want. Uh, and his recurring point is always that, well, actually, you know, people, uh, th these choices are being delimited at some other level. Um, something is always going to be left out. Uh, something is going to be screened out or whatever. And so actually, he ends up saying, you know, more or less this, uh, it is, it is actually, uh, the more, uh, unique identity would be when you refuse the list, right? When you look at the list and you select nothing, um, which again, I think is, uh, interesting to to read against stuff that nakamura is writing at the same time because nakamura's question is not so much like oh like let's be unique individuals it is well what does it mean when you look at the list and you don't see what you think you are right how you identify mm -hmm. like what does it mean to not be recognized by the list by by the archive or database or whatever um so there's that yeah <laughs> yeah i think there's a that, that is part of a long-running um a long-running tension, right? Where uh, for some people, particularly on the political left, being illegible is seen as a, or being illegible by a system is seen somehow as a form of power. And that is often responded to by people who are inherently 
for racial reasons or for the way their gender is categorized or whatever, right, are made illegible by systems. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, that there's a that's a long-running tension mm-hmm. uh, between, you know, those two things. And, and so, you know, I, sometimes that gets resolved with, yeah, in fact, being unrecognizable might just be best for everybody. You know, I've seen that argument being made. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's a tension that comes up because of the shape of the citational apparatus, right? Who you were in conversation with and the kind of ideas that you're talking to in a book determines the kinds of claims you make. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. And, um, you know, I, like I said, from, uh, from the past six months of what we've been doing on the show, sometimes you can really feel what kinds of questions were, were asked here and what kinds uh, were not. Mm-hmm. We get kind of like an interesting cavalcade of stuff through the rest of this chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somehow in talking about compositing, we're going to get the story of Potemkin villages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and about sort of like, you know, uh, uh, ideological simulation, right? Like how, how do you fake things uh, for ideological purposes? Because uh, Manovich takes kind of the, the notorious story of Catherine the Great and the Potemkin villages uh, and then uh, pitches that forward into uh, you know, growing up in the USSR and kind of how uh, there were certain routes that important uh, visitors to Moscow were allowed to travel on. And those were the, always the ones that were well-maintained and that like the militia came through and rounded up the drunks or whatever. So they wouldn't be out invisible. Uh, so the, 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 the sort of uh, creation of uh, what he's going to end up calling a virtual space really is what it's about. Right. And mm-hmm. for, Otherwise, right, compositing for Manovich is most important as a thing that happens in digital cinema. Uh, And like one of the big examples here is uh, Jurassic Park, where you have something that is filmed like on set for real, like here in the park. And then we have a digital effect, which is this uh, render of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And we composite the Tyrannosaurus Rex into the actual film scene in such a way that it looks like that Tyrannosaurus Rex is in this real space. And this creates a virtual space, uh, a kind of an illusionary space. Uh, and, you know, that's that's compositing. Uh, just another like uh, thing to point out about the composite here is that he talks about how old media and specifically I really like uh, pre-digital cinema uh, is about montage, about p- taking two things that are disconnected and then uh, getting them to kind of blur together in some way, getting the viewer mm-hmm. to kind of do the imaginative work to link this shot to that shot, this scene to that scene. Uh, whereas uh, he claims uh Digital cinema or or new media cinema or what have you, uh, or new media, I guess, generally is more about continuity, right? About making things seem uh, seamless. So that's, you know, the making it look like the uh, Tyrannosaurus is actually there in this real, you know, grassy area in, you know, the real meadow in in, uh, wherever they filmed Jurassic Park. And then he also says, uh, sort of contrary to this, weirdly enough, there's also a series of digital filmmakers who are using like the ability of like digital montage, not to emphasize continuity and smoothness, uh, but to, uh, you know, sort of present these kind of experimental films where, quote, different worlds can clash semantically rather than form a single universe, uh, which I think is interesting just because, like, that's what I think, you know, David Lynch's Inland Empire is, right? I think that's a really good example mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, Lynch goes to digital cinema and he, not that he hasn't been doing, you know, discontinuity and, and, and weird things prior to that, 
uh, but that that feels like a description of Inland Empire to me of uh, taking kind of different worlds that can sort of come together, but never quite like fit uh, neatly with one another. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. And it's really it's interesting, too, how I guess um, the uh the blockbuster filmmaking apparatus is just eating that alive. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, was it the Mitchells versus the machines that came out recently? The animated yeah. film where its whole pitch is that, Oh, look at all these different aesthetic regimes that are absorbed into uh-huh. the big, you know, a filmmaking apparatus. It It is interesting to look at precisely because it doesn't cohere. Um, and I, I you know, into the spider verse yes. was kind of, that's the pitch for it too, mm-hmm. right? Like missing frames and all that kind of stuff. Uh, frame skipping to make it look like something other than what it is. And that's the, the pull for, from it. So, um, you know, dang capitalism sure eats everything, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I actually find that really compelling, you know, before, before we move on to chapter four, I think it would be really interesting to take these arguments he's making about cinema and kind of uh, digital compositing and everything here. I think it would be really interesting to take those and then apply them to, um, the the kind of special effects differences between the original trilogy of Star Wars and then the first sequel trilogy, um, because you know those those original Star Wars movies kind of work really brilliantly because of you know we cut to the space of the Imperial Star Destroyer right and it's a model and it's mm-hmm. moving but it looks totally coherent within that and then we we cut back to human actors at human scale and the the cross cutting the montaging is actually kind of what makes it work mm-hmm. you know that that we can hold those spaces in tension with one another. And we know that the Star Destroyer is not, you know, <laughs> it, it looks good, but we know that it's not a real starship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to something like, you know, episodes one, two, and three, where the whole thing's crammed together. And he actually ends up talking about um, uh, <laughs> episode one a lot yeah. in this book. Episode one um, comes up quite a few, uh, at quite a few points. <laughs> yeah, but but he says, you know, something uh, like uh, there's 24 thousand shots or something or 2400 shots individual shots in the film and 2000 of them are digitally manipulated or something like that or or entirely digital i forget what he said yeah and at some point he's like the movie was like assembled 95 percent in the computer or something along those lines yes yeah yeah i'm trying to recall the specific number but yeah that's the line where he says it's it's 90 or 95 percent but anyway it actually reminds me of something sorry i just want to mention it reminds me of a a discussion that happens on a more civilized age uh the star wars podcast or rather the clone wars podcast uh uh that uh rob zachney uh austin walker uh uh alicia akimpora and natalie watson do uh they're watching the Clone Wars, you know, TV series like the Star Wars TV series, but they've also been watching the prequel movies. And I remember one of the things that Rob said uh, while talking about, I think it was Attack of the Clones, um, was like the realization he had in the middle of this very bad movie where he was like, oh, I'm also like watching the birth of the modern blockbuster, right? Like this, like these three movies are kind of prototyping um, like how a Marvel movie is made these days. Uh, and yeah. so again, right, capitalism eating everything. Um, yeah, uh, the the end of the Avengers Infinity War is just <laughs> just some scenes from Attack of the Clones. And if that makes you unhappy, I'm sorry to report that that's just the facts. <laughs> 
uh, uh, the last huge bombshell arguments being made an hour and 40 minutes into this episode. <laughs> um, and just the, just because I mentioned it, the last thing is teleaction, which is just uh, being able to look at something on a computer that is showing you like information from some other location and pressing a button on that computer. And then uh, some like surrogate for you at that location that you are remotely viewing then does some sort of action. So the, the example he gives is the first scene of Titanic where the guy has the little uh, robot floating down into the wreckage and he can like move it around and move its arms and so on and so forth. So um, that's the other thing that happens with new media is teleaction action at a distance. Chapter four, the illusions. The illusions. I like how we went different ways there. Uh, yeah i went uh human giant Uh (laughs) uh-huh it's like i was gonna say you were ticklebar and i was uh what's his face from uh that clive barker movie hellraiser no um what's the other one oh god it's rawhead rex it's no 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 it's the it's the um his character who's like a, a supernatural detective nightbreed yeah uh it's not nightbreed god it's the other it's the guy he the his line is like i was born to murder the world (laughs) <laughs> right, the resurrected uh, wizard. I I don't know what you're talking. Hold about. on, gotta look this up now that you don't know this line. Uh, uh... oh, Lord of Illusions. That's what. That's, <laughs> that was easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that the wizard comes back and he's like, "I was born to murder the world." Every day we get closer and closer to our Clive Barker podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, chapter four, the illusions, um, kind of starts at the beginning. He, he does a pretty good job. I think, uh, at the beginning of all these chapters of like numerically laying out what the chapter is going to be, but getting through that numeric list is often pretty hard, but sometimes in the middle of them, he's got a good, like pithy, you know, this is what we're doing here. Thesis statement. This one, uh, quote, how is the reality effect of a mm-hmm. synthetic image different from that of optical media? Meaning that when I watch a movie. Or when I look at a painting, how's that different than looking at, uh, you know, a uh, World of Warcraft screen, mm-hmm. you know, or something like Photoshop? How's that different, Michael? Well, uh, it's not so much. The, the question is not even just how is that different, right? But like, what are the conditions under which you might recognize one of those things as realistic or not? Uh, tapping on sort of my earlier point. Um you know, what is uh, sort of different in my expectations when looking at a painting versus looking at a screen that is showing World of Warcraft? What do I expect to happen? Uh, and so on and so forth. So really, uh, if you want to know what, what the actual difference is, right, uh, what, what the big difference is, new media, and this is on page 183, move us from identification to action. So normally I look at a painting and I am like, hmm, that sure is a woman uh, pouring a, you know, a, a carafe of water into a bowl in a Dutch kitchen in the 1500s. I'm like, I'm seeing that. I'm apprehending it. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh Or if I'm watching a film and I am seeing, uh, you know, people moving through space, having interactions, seeing their expressions, um, and I'm identifying those expressions, understanding what is happening, and then also identifying with the characters, you know, occasionally taking on point of view shots or or, uh, things of that nature, right? Uh, Emotionally identifying with the material. Uh, what I do in new media then is that I'm not just like looking at things and identifying, although that's, you know, 
also happening. Uh, but I am identifying and then being presented with opportunities to act or react. I can do something kind of uh, in return. And this uh, puts a lot of weird pressure on older regimes of like illusion, right? So in painting, it is, uh, I'm not gonna say it's easy, right? But like, you can do a trick painting, right? A, a, a child can do it. Yes. <laughs> a, a, ba a baby could could paint it. A baby could paint. What 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 is the uh, uh, oh the image of with the the death's head that you can only view from an angle? What's that? Yes, called? yes. Um, the oh, is it anamorphosis? I think. It, keep talking. I'll look it up. Anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, a a baby could uh, draw that picture of an elephant that looks like it has four legs, but also maybe five legs. Right. But uh, mm -hmm. like what Manovich lays out here is that in order to be deceptive, um, an image must be uh, to some extent, right, uh, uh, realistic, right? It has to uh, realistic in the sense that uh, it is trying to be very similar to something in the world. Right. Um, and it also is trying to accommodate some aspect or tendency of human vision. And then it, you know, to, to do the illusion thing, it, uh, you know, does something weird and like sets that off, right? Your, your, your mm -hmm. processing power gets, uh, uh short circuited. Uh, let's just fully adapt the computer metaphors. Let's <laughs> lean into it. Uh, the, uh, the painting is the ambassador. Yes. Very famous painting by Hans Holbein, the younger. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we have that, uh, but the, the thing that, uh, Manovich is sort of quick to point out is that each generation, quote unquote generation, basically like each media generation, every time a new media format kind of ascends, uh, the ability of that medium to be more illusionary or to be more elusive or something uh, than the previous one is always felt very strongly, right? The new thing comes like, so, uh, and this is a thing that I've talked about multiple times, but, uh, you know, the theater comes around and in, in uh, London in the 1500s and people are like, holy crap, uh, like going to the theater and seeing people get murdered is so real that they will like leave the theater and start doing murders, because no one's getting punished for murders in the theater and like the the, the experience of seeing these acts, uh, you know, uh, performed is so close to the real thing that people will not be able to distinguish between the two. The same argument, of course, gets made about uh, novels a couple centuries later. And uh, it's the uh, d and emerges and mm -hmm. that uh, MIT kid disappears and they, everyone believes that he's in a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. Make a Tom Hanks movie about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so D&D, &D, again, is, is another good example. And of course, like video games themselves, right? Each sort of new medium is uh, somehow uh, perceived to be more effective, more total in its ability to cast an illusion than whatever has come before. Um, so the, the thing then uh, that ends up happening that I think is really interesting in this chapter is that uh, Manovich points out that new media aren't really about like seamlessness in that way, or very often they're about juxtaposition about like being uh, like presenting you with an illusion and then breaking it uh, uh, or something like that. This is also the point where he talks about uh, Star Wars episode one again, and he calls it and other similar movies. Uh, uh, he calls them religious experiences. He says that they are quote cathedrals made of light. 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, George Lucas, of course, the uh, the cinematic painter of flying. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is actually, that's a very good uh, uh, parallel to draw, maybe, with some of the way some of those prequels have aged in terms of how they looked. Um, mm-hmm. But this is also another example that he covers here is, I don't remember who these guys are, but they did that painting that's sort of like ironizing Soviet socialist realism. It's called Bolsh- it's Bolsheviks Coming Home from a Demonstra- Demonstration. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's straight up done in the style of like Soviet socialist realism. So it's very realistic, very warm colors, kind of heroic looking. Right. One of the guys is standing there with like the red flag held and they're both looking down uh, at this sort of glowing thing on the ground below them with with looks of awe. Right. Almost kind of um, supernatural awe. And the thing that they are looking, and this is a painting, by the way, it's, it's you know, perfectly mimicking the style of Soviet socialist realism from the beginning of the century, uh, but it is made in the 80s. And the thing that they are looking at is uh, a tiny little dinosaur standing in the snow looking up at them. And it, lo- it like, I love this painting. It looks incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> Uh, we'll tweet it out yeah we'll tweet it again it's so good um but uh this is also the the point where he makes the argument that uh you know digital effects uh often get criticized for not looking as realistic as like say a a model or a miniature or some sort of in-camera thing but in fact digital effects are more realistic uh precisely because uh in terminator 2 when you need to show the future when you need to show the t-1000 it's only digital effects that are going to get you that it is precisely in sort of like the the unreality of the T-1000 that you get the realism of new media. Uh, so, again, it's it's about um, this tension between, uh, again, what he calls meta realism of uh, as aspiring to, toward realism or following some following some sort of conventions of realism and then strategically breaking them. And then again, weirdly enough, he parallels this with uh, like the theory of cynical ideology from Peter Sloterdyke, uh, who mm-hmm. I don't know is cited, but it's the exact sort of argument uh, where Sloterdyke says, you know, in the old days when we thought about ideology, we thought it was a, like basically a form of uh top-down indoctrination of a kind of brainwashing, right? Like, all of these people are just ignorant and they don't know that they need to become communists and uh, overthrow uh, you know, the, the uh, capitalist class uh, or whatever particular kind of ideological critique you're trying, trying to levy there. And Slaughterdyke points out, uh, sort of in, in modern society, meaning, you know, 1980s, 1990s, uh, we've become cynical about ideology in that, uh, you know, uh, as Zizek later puts it, um, you know, I, I know very well uh, what I am doing and I do it anyway. Because I am I have some sort of like distance from it. I can be like, well, yeah, I know that like capitalism is bad and blah, 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 blah. But like, uh, what else am I going to do? Like, I got a limited amount of time. Like, I got to I got to do something with my life. So I'm just going to kind of, you know, figure figure things out. Weirdly enough, right, this this ideological structure, the structure of the ideological subject for Manovich is also the aesthetic structure of meta realism of new media, which is a type of realism that is always subverting itself or incorporates its own kind of critique. Um, And I will just add and he actually gets to this in in the following chapter i think that this is also how video games work and because i'm me uh this is also how the theater in uh the late 1500s in london worked 
It is precisely <laughs> in this the periodic shifts between like the maintenance of, a, of an illusion and then the uh, uh, puncturing of it or the suspension of it uh, that in, in like uh, uh, trying to forge a media format that can incorporate uh, its own kind of uh, counter move. Right. Yeah, it's on 207. He says uh, he's talking about new media objects broadly. And remember that long list I read, you know. Uh, the subject, quote, the subject is forced to oscillate between the roles of viewer and user, shifting between perceiving and acting, between following the story and actively participating in it. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, right? Like, it's this kind of maintenance, uh, mental maintenance of a broad system. And, and I think, you know, what, what Manovich would say is that, you know, new media, op- lots of media require this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't, like, I'm not saying this to Lev Manovich, but read a book right like <laughs> you like you we jump perspectives we jump from different narratorial modes we jump from uh you know different types of writing mm-hmm. itself you know think of something like um house of leaves uh, uh well yeah house of leaves which has come up on the show before i was thinking of john dos passos mm-hmm. uh but you know similar kind of tristram stuff right it's completely different tristram shandy different media forms even showing up within the text right so so in some ways it seems like if we take of it in in the broadest possible form, it's really just different media forms have different ways of holding the illusion together and asking you to stitch a lot of disparate material together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't it, like it, what what's being added here. I guess is activity, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically, but then you know this is what I think of. This is this is the 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 razor that slices all of it, right? For me, is what about close up magic? <laughs> Right, like, what about a magic trick in the mid nineteenth century? Because it's asking you to do all the same stuff that new media objects are doing. It's asking you to keep a bunch of different regimes of truth in your head. It's asking you to be deeply participatory. Mm-hmm. Pick a card, any card. Um, you know, I don't know if that like magic really messes up the system <laughs> for for me, especially like popular magic from the mid you know eighteen fifties onward. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magic seem close up magic in particular seems to be new media before new media. That is interesting. It's disturbing to me. Well, it's disturbing, but it's it's interesting because he brings up Victorian magic lantern shows show, so often, mm-hmm. but does not actually talk yeah. about Victorian magic. So, mm-hmm. um, if you can hear something on the background of my audio, folks, uh, that's you know those are the drones coming to get me. Uh, they hate it. Yeah. They hate magic. No, it's it's because I live within some sort of flight line of the Logan Airport. So there are, sometimes there are planes passing overhead and they're quite low. <laughs> Brag. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's great. <laughs> um <clears throat> but uh but yeah, so that's kind of where the 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 shore that the uh the chapter kind of, you know, ends on is Yep. Uh, it's a uh, uh, new media holds all these things in tension and you kind of got to navigate. Them yeah. The end. Oh, and then the, the, actually I think I misspoke. It's not in the next chapter that he talks about video games. It's at the end of this one. He says, you know, video games mm-hmm. moving between like actual gameplay and cutscenes, um, which is a very, you know, nineties way of, of formulating the video game. And I think we're, you know, beyond that. So if we want to, uh, consider this, uh, in, in the format of the contemporary game, there's some work to be done. Uh, but it's the same thing, right? Where I am, looking at the cutscenes, and I have a certain set of expectations, a certain set of like, uh, aesthetic, uh, aesthetic desires or, uh, uh, 
you know, things that I think are going to make a good cutscene, and those are not the same things that I want when I have my hands back on the controller during the gameplay scene. It's precisely in the moving between mm -hmm. modes uh, that Manovich sees the, the meta-realism happening. I think you would think that we were in a different place, and I think that the the objects in front of us are certainly in a different place, but I think this theorization, you could pop this theorization out, and you can put it in the year 2021, and it would not feel that weird. Um, we are still very much in a mode of either ignoring the fact that there are differences there. So lots of game studies work, and I, I don't think I'm being uncharitable here, just kind of says all these are the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Cutscenes and inactive gameplay are just kind of the same and writes about them as if there is no separation between them or just fundamentally ignores one or the other mm -hmm. and pretends like it's not there. It's it's actually really weird. In doing some research for my book, I was I was reading about cutscene, kind of, kind of cutscene theorizations, and what I found was basically this claim quite often. So huh. um, I, I would I would be really interested in reading a, a full book on cutscenes. I don't think there is one. If someone knows of one, please let me know. I or has like good chapters to recommend. I've read a lot of um, uh, individual essays and stuff about it, but uh, finding book chapters is pretty hard. You know, especially in like books written between like the year two thousand and two thousand and. 15 or something for whatever reason they're indexed less well in, in research databases so if you've got some cool stuff about video game cutscenes, you think i should read please send it along i would love to do it you can tweet it at me or send it to me on discord chapter five michael is on the forms mm -hmm. and you might think is that plato calling <laughs> baby i hear plato a calling <laughs> new media and their forms <laughs> No, no, new media and eggs. <laughs> Speaking of eggs, Razorfish, fish lay eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, Razorfish shows <laughs> up at the very segue. beginning of this. I know, I'm, I'm good at it. Two hours in, I'm, I'm, my best segues come after two hours of uninterrupted talking. Um, the uh, Razorfish show up here, and if you're not familiar with Razorfish, this is it's almost beautifully poetic because. Razorfish are a company that was one of the kind of darlings of the dot-com bubble. They were, they were, <laughs> they are billed and they are still called on Wikipedia. They are called by Manovich in this chapter, quote, an interactive agency. Great. I love it. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of this, um, I don't know. I mean, kind of a digital ad agency yeah. for, for lack of a, a better term, but, but this is written and this is published in 2001, right? Uh-huh. Um, so like right before this is published or during it being published is, uh, when the dot-com bubble is finally collapses, you know, it, I think 99, 2000, 2001 is this kind of like a roller coaster down and then eventually it pops somewhere in here. But when Lev Manovich is writing this chapter, presumably it hasn't popped. And so Razorfish is this large design agency in New York, uh, in the late nineties, you know, from like mid nineties, they go from having a few employees to being a huge Titan in the industry. They buy a bunch of like weird firms, internet firms all over the world. They're massive at this time. And they, you know, got this New York headquarters and they do a 60 famously. Cause I, when Razorfish showed up in this book, I was like, why do I know that name? So I Googled it very famously gave an interview <laughs> to 60 minutes in which the the uh you know the the um what are they called broadcaster mm -hmm. is interviewing the two guys who like run the firm and he's like what do you do just period and one of the guys is like 
we help companies win. <laughs> and, and he goes, no, 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 What do you do? <laughs> and they can't answer. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they only have ad speak, right? They only have, like, this weird industrial kind of thing. Because re- in reality, they do everything, right? They are They are truly, like... They build websites, they do ad campaigns, they connect people up with services. It's just this kind of like weird tech melange that that, uh, we would associate with startup culture. It's Mm -hmm. this early version of startup culture where it's like, yeah, they do something and they're like figuring it out. And but mostly it seemed like a company where growth and then an IPO was the goal. Uh Right. And delivering a product was secondary to that. Maybe I'm wrong. Someone let me know if that's the case. But that was kind of the deal and that's what happened and then they uh the they they burst and like you know tank the company tanks and i think it's still around um but in some weird augmented bizarro form but so it be, i say all of that to say that this chapter begins with like razorfish as the image of the future uh-huh. and uh Funny enough, I guess it's accurate uh-huh. in that like rapid boom bust explosions are in fact the future. That that is the future that came to to pass. And like selling things that don't exist and like uh being weird tech bros, mm-hmm. that that is the future, but that's not what Manovich is talking about. Yeah. Uh so <laughs> Uh, that is like kind of the, the opening anecdote, which then segues into this claim on, on 216, which is that new media objects, because this is the forums, right? We're, we're moving from Razorfish to talk about uh, what is the form of a new media object. Well, whatever new media object is, it holds within it competing goals of psychological engagement and information access, uh, which are... Uh, here figured as sort of representation versus action. I don't remember if I don't know if I paralleled those correctly, uh, those terms. At any rate, um, there is uh, a tension between uh, when you're engaging with, say, World of Warcraft. Um, am I, I, I let me be clear. I am not sure if I buy this. Not 100 percent sure if I mm-hmm. agree that these are intention in the way that I think Manovich is formulating them. Um in the sense that like when I'm playing World of Warcraft, I don't feel like there's like a battle in my head between my psychological engagement and my information access, meaning do I understand what is going on on the screen versus do I care? Um, Now, certainly those things have an impact in terms of like whatever it is that I'm doing with World of Warcraft, uh, but it's not so much that those are competing goals as they are like the two, like they are two goals that are happening at once. They are not necessarily competing with one another. Uh, just the object, I think, is trying to serve both of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, they are not uh, competing problems at the level of representation, right? Yeah. Like, for you, for, in, in a practical way. They might be competing goals in, like, other ways that we're engaging with it, right? Mm-hmm. So... I, I can imagine a world in which uh, what is happening on the screen of, of World of Warcraft and what is, uh, you know, w- w- on the representational uh, level is impeding my ability to, like, call out to my guild mm-hmm. what they need to be doing at the time. And so there might be, like, this this uh, friction at the level of intention of action versus, like, the way that I'm engaging with the representation. I That probably is true. But, I, but those are not hap- – the tension is not happening – at the moment of interaction mm-hmm. with the thing, when I sit down in front of the screen, right? And I'm like, oh, I'm being pulled in too many directions. I don't think that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, this is also, you know, I was talking earlier about uh, the Galloway book, The Interface Effect. It, its opening chapter is a 
kind of critique of Lev Manovich, and it actually kind of begins from this position mm. of it reads his um, uh, uh, his chapter on the interface and some of the parts here in chapter five, and basically it's like yeah, this is kind of a false way of approaching these, and and Galloway does a really interesting uh, read actually of the World of Warcraft interface that way. But um, so yeah, I think I think that's a fair read. He's also interested in kind of the, the flip side too, the way that media objects are like running into the world we live in mm-hmm. and kind of uh, transforming them. He then actually gets into a really uh, in-depth analysis of video games here. Uh, yeah. This, I would say if there's a video games chapter in this book that is largely not directly about games, mm-hmm. uh, then this is the one. Um, but does things that I think are beautiful uh, in the sense that like, Ludology versus narratology is happening at the moment. This is uh-huh. this is occurring, right? Like, um, you know, the two primary books of the field, the you know, the Janet Murray book and then uh, Espinosa. Those books are out. People are having these arguments in publications, in journals, in their own books, on the internet. You know, these these uh, uh, disagreements um, are occurring, and Lev Manovich is clearly not engaging with any of that. And, and if he's reading it, he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, and it's just saying things that that are like are deeply need to be qualified, and he just doesn't care, <laughs> right? So, he, so he says at one point, he just says, uh, "Yeah, everything you do in a game is experienced as a narrative." And like you know, Janet Murray in Hamlet on the Holodeck is at pains, you know, this this kind of uh, very famous example of Tetris, uh-huh. right? Like Tetris allegorizes American life and then capitalism, all this stuff. And Lev Manovich is just like, yeah, uh, when things happen linearly and you have some sort of interaction with them, you're obviously going to narrativize it. So everything's a narrative. The end. And anyway, let's talk about something else. Right. Like <laughs> he just so cleanly moves through it. And I, I love it. Like it's, it's so funny to me that he like, it's just like, that, yeah, that's the truth. That's where it's at. And he's like, yeah, games are about executing an algorithm. You like take rules into you and you adapt to those rules and then you do whatever they require of you. The end. Like, let's go to the next thing. Yeah. And like all of these are like deeply controversial claims within game studies. In fact, to the point where like even that, like how does a player execute an algorithm? I would say that that is the primary question that Ian Bogos wrote two books about. Right. <laughs> like two full-length books are about that and they're long too and like Manovich just says it in a sentence and like doesn't feel like he needs to defend it or think it or, or anything else beyond it um and in some way that's just really refreshing right? <laughs> being like yeah games are just a new media object and they've got some basic qualities to them i might need to explain those a little bit but basically they just work to the rest of the, the you know the system i've laid out already so don't think about it too hard um i i I really appreciated that i think it's funny i don't think you can just do that right Mm -hmm. i don't think especially now uh with game studies so well formed and and um positioned i think you have a little bit more of a responsibility as a scholar to to actually talk about um some some game specific stuff here but i i I cannot say that i didn't read it and be like yep those were the days (laughs) (laughs) Like cow, not a cow wine sight, uh-huh. just one man vibe. <laughs> no, no mention of the magic circle at all. None at all. Like none of that shit matters. Just one guy talking about mist. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great. Um, the other thing that ends up happening here is a, a lot of talk about the database as kind of a fundamental new media object. 
and the database mm-hmm. as specifically a thing that is transforming the ways that we're going to think about narrative and how it works. So if we're thinking of, let's say, a piece of interactive fiction or a video game or some some uh, storytelling experience where a story is going to have variations, right? What Janet Murray calls the multi-form narrative. Uh, what Manovich says is that rather than, uh, as some people uh, claim at this time and, and maybe still even now, uh, that the player becomes like a co-author uh, with the creator of of the text because they're like picking what is showing up and so on and so forth. Uh, Manovich is saying, well, really what that person is doing is traversing a database of possibilities that have been laid out by the designers. Um, and so from this, two things happen. One is that uh, Manovich makes a claim that video games are always about uh, traversing space which I think is a thing that we can complicate. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, like that's sort of one thing. Uh, and then sort of the second thing, um, which is what what do we do with, what do narratives look like now? Weirdly enough, he turns to speculation at the end again, right? What are what are uh, narratives going to look like uh, now that the, the grounding of them is the database? And he gets here through narratology, um, weirdly mm-hmm. enough, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that he got his PhD at uh, U- University of Rochester and he studied under Mike Ball, uh, who is a narratologist whom I've read. And she is uh, cited here a couple of times, very um, big uh, name in, in sort of the field of narratology or sort of like the subdiscipline within literary theory. Um, and what he pulls out of narratology is uh, this distinction uh, by way of uh, Ferdinand de Saussure. Uh, between the the paradigm and the syntam <laughs> real fun discussion we're getting ready to have here uh once i'm laying out Great. the vocab words i i love it i love semiotics uh-huh. <clears throat> and structuralism structural semiotics put them together wow mm-hmm. it's like a it's like bacon and eggs to me <laughs> so uh just to lay this out very simply imagine a sentence imagine the sentence that i am speaking uh all of the things that I am saying or all of the sentences that I could write uh, have within them words, and those words are syntams, meaning that they are specific instances of types of words, of communicative little bits of information uh, that belong to larger categories of uh similar things that are called paradigms so for instance uh the cat ran away cat there is a syntam right it is syntactically situated within a particular sentence uh but the paradigm that the cat is a part of would be something like noun right there's a whole paradigm of things called nouns cat is one of them um we could also you know further subdivide this up and talk about like animal nouns versus uh, uh you know furniture or inanimate or whatever uh all of these things could happen. And one of the things that uh, narratology kind of takes as its starting point is that what you have in front of you is the syntam. And you are trying to uh, reverse engineer the syntam in order to find the paradigm. This is what you were talking about, Cameron, with structuralism. Uh, like, I am, I have a particular instance of a thing here. Uh, how does it fit into the broader collection of like things? Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for new media narrative, specifically narrative in the database, the database 
actually inverts the literary relationship for uh, Manovich because the database is the paradigm, right? It is the, the sort of broader structure that contains all of the other things. And when you as an interactor, user, player, what have you, go through this and you make your choices that, uh, you know, determine how your story shakes out, uh, you are choosing... Uh, a kind of temporary arrangement of syntams uh, from the material basis of the paradigm that is actually going to persist whatever your particular instantiation of this text is. So, <laughs> I think this is kind of interesting. Um, what I think is also very interesting is this claim on page 234 where Manovich goes on to say that, uh, well, actually, here's give us a, on 227, here's a good quote. Uh, the new media object consists of one or more interfaces to a database of multimedia material. Um, so an interactive narrative becomes, quote, the sum of multiple trajectories through a database. Cool. Then later on, page 234, modern media is the new battlefield uh, for, for the competition between database and narrative. And here's where I have a question, which is, <laughs> why are they competing what does that mean? And where did this come from? Uh, because he just kind of asserts that there is a competition, right? That there is a battlefield between database and narrative. Uh, where again, I don't think there necessarily is. I don't understand. Like one does not follow from the other. Um, and to act like that, this is sort of just evident or apparent is confusing to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I I think the charitable way I, I agree. I, I don't think it makes any sense. Uh, I think the charitable way of reading it is that narrative here is because I'm thinking about the way he's writing about cinema too, right? Mm. Narrative here is linear experience, ex, linear story as it is experience, linear media as it is experience, mm -hmm. and if at any moment, so for example, um, if I'm watching. WandaVision, uh -huh. which I didn't, mm -hmm. but but I, I, I did uh, catch some of the discussion about it. If I'm watching WandaVision and in the middle of that, I don't know, the Green Goblin shows up. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think he did. No, Maybe he did. He did. I remember I go, everyone posted about it. They were like, what? Green Goblin. It's the Green Goblin. He's got pumpkin bombs. Ah. Uh, so the Green Goblin shows up and then I go to my Wikipedia, my, my Marvelpedia, whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like Green Goblin and, and figuring out everything and all the connections to the Green Goblin. There's a way that that um, the referential character of narrative, the, the ability for narrative to kick out into a database logic of a bunch of other stuff, that that narrative no longer functions in the way it used to. I'm so glad you said right. that because uh, then I said, uh, so a few pages after this, 243, uh, Manovich then writes, new media designers and artists still have yet to learn how to merge database and narrative into a new form. And to talk about capitalism ruining everything again, uh, what I wrote here for my note is that, yeah, uh, big corporations have figured this out. This is franchise logic. This is Star Wars, and this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. They had already figured this out. He wrote, he's written about Star Wars episode one a million times in the yeah. book, right? Like, what do you think? Like, uh, you know, I don't know how you watch you know, a story that is a prequel about Darth Vader, right? mm -hmm. <laughs> fundamentally. And you're not like, I don't know. But, and like, everything is a reference to something else in this cinematic universe. And you're like, 
I just don't know if the database and narrative are able to work together. <laughs> Hard to know, right? But but I think it, I think that that's within a a qualified understanding of narrative that it, that has to do with like linearity and experientiality in the way that you would sit in a darkened movie theater and watch a Martin Scorsese film, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think that's the the way you have to qualify narrative in order for that to make sense. But but I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This is Star Wars. It's uh, Marvel. It is every video game franchise, mm-hmm. right? Like it's the Elder Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that narrative tension versus the database can can really be felt in something like video games way more than it can be felt in cinema today mm-hmm. or, or in TV or visual culture and other forms of visual culture. Um, because, for example, right, um, you know, we've had long form discussions about uh, Disco Elysium on the uh, uh, due to the current season of Mages and Murder Dads, our, our show uh, where Danny and I are playing through Disco Elysium right now. And so we've had uh, long form discussions on the Discord with people who are engaging in the show and are playing the game about what is truth in that game, mm-hmm. right? Is truth something that is represented somewhere in the database of the game's uh, script, which has been dumped and people can look at and search and find? It's on the internet. Um, Is it something that is represented in the skills on the wiki that you can go look at? Or is uh, what is in the game kind of the linear experience of a single playthrough that, uh, that a player has? Because there is some contradictory information about the stakes and kind of material of the world in Disco Elysium. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's in fact, I think that the the tension between narrative and database still exists, but it's kind of this like meta move, you know, uh, Manovich has already been pretty clear that that capitalism or image culture, right? He's, he's unwilling to, to t- talk to capitalism often in this book, but image culture is pretty smart, smart about um, kind of jumping up a metal layer regularly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's heavily dependent on Frederick Jameson and a couple times, during this book where he says, you know, when media change, it is when something that has been sublimated becomes dominant. And when something that becomes dominant becomes sublimated. And I think that we can see that happening here with database and narrative around visual culture. The database has become dominant mm-hmm. within our media formation. And whatever the next move is, it will be a movement in which narrative dominates the 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 database mm-hmm. and i think that that's happening within video games if video games you know something that we can see in this book is that video games have always been on the avant-garde of what new media is doing mm-hmm. you know like video games are the limit case here um, for forms and for the illusion and and all that that's why he's running into video games constantly i think that if there's another kind of move that happens between database and narrative here we're seeing it happen in video games with things like Disco Elysium or uh, Wilder Myth, which came out recently, which is a procedurally narrative, uh, procedurally generated narrative and tactics game that is doing high levels of procedural generation in its narrative formation. I mean, it's it's pretty astounding. I would really encourage people who are interested in these things to check it out, and it's also a really cool video game anyway. So I, I think if you're looking at for where the, where the database is going to become more complicated or is going to become uh, go, move into service to narrative again after something like The Avengers, it's going to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, in games but also that means you know the next move after we inevitably become fatigued with things like the avengers and star wars in their current form i think we're going to move into un unrelated stories in those universes that te- that keep those things um maybe the, the base assumptions together but don't provide big massive universes mm-hmm. i think we're going to see that as the next move there called shot for the next 30 years all right 
You think video games are all about traversing space? Um, no, not necessarily. Not in the way that uh, you might assume based on the examples that uh, Manovich pulls out, uh, which is, you know, Quake and Mist. Yeah. For, for, for someone who is so attentive to the way that software and hardware work in this book, really, uh, I, I would say, like, non-specific about what the word space means. Yeah. Because, like, the way that you navigate Mist and Doom is not the same. The way they construct space is not the same. The way that you see that space and the way that you interact with that space is not the same. Like, in Doom, you can literally walk your way around every wall in the game, and you can, like, face those walls and look at them from many different angles. Like, that's the whole thing. In Mist, you are you can't do that. Like, like what is afforded space is very delimited compared to Doom. Um, but they get treated as like the same. The, their differences are in their like marketing and the way that they like use cinematic form for him. They're not different in the way that they like spatially operate, mm-hmm. which is very weird. Very weird to me. I don't. I don't know if this is the most uh, useful reading of video games for me here. Uh, anything else left in chapter five here that you want to talk about? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, we just kind of end with uh, this idea of traversing space. We talk about Geert Lovink and his idea of the data dandy as sort of like the new media version of the flaneur who we talked about way back in the, uh, the surrealism episode, I think. Was that when we last talked about the flaneur? Mm, yeah, probably. Maybe? Okay. Probably. Um, and then of course, uh, kind of like the trademark Manovich like note of pessimism is just like and of course all of this uh, uh, reduces back historically to the first military flight sims mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then he ends with kind of this concluding note you know what what is it that he wanted to do in this book what is it that he hopes that he has done what is it that he wants to do going forward and he wants to ground uh, new media in history rather than talking about it as if it's something that has uh, overcome or escaped the forces of history uh, and then we have chapter six. <laughs> you might think that. Yes, it is absolutely wild. What is happening here? I was going to say that what I just said, you might think that's the end of the book. But no, we have one more chapter and it's called What is Cinema? It fully feels like an addendum. It does not feel like it is a part of this book at all. I don't know why this is in the book. And and I, I sincerely mean that. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I just don't really understand because the <laughs> chapter five has a full conclusion to the book in it. And then it's like, oh, wait, hold on. Cinema. What is cinema? And and I wonder if maybe this was going to supposed to be at the front of the book originally, mm. that it was going to be like, what is cinema? What's new media? And then we move through what new media does. And maybe that felt like it was too much of a book about cinema at the top. And so mm. maybe they moved it around. Like that's something I could see happening. But the whole book feels like it's about cinema anyway. Like the guarantee of all of these ideas is always cinema and these media forms is difference from cinema, sometimes very small differences from cinema. So I don't even know if that like, you know, if I were to recut this book, like people do with famous albums, right? <laughs> you know, like I like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna recut Ziggy Star Wars. Or or I'm Star gonna, Wars like, prequels. Exactly. Uh, if I recut this, I would just make this the first chapter. I would cut that prologue thing, get that out of here. Give us the acknowledgments. Give us the introduction. Put what is cinema at the front, and then also let us linearly move through. But maybe this is also that kind of like hyperlinky CD Rami kind of idea that you were talking about at the beginning mm-hmm. of like where we started from is what is new media. But at the end, we need to find out what is cinema, you know. And then like we're scratching on the on the vinyl here. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think that you need to read this chapter to have a good time with this book or understand it. Mm-hmm. I. 
I'll just be. I funny. mean, I I wrote uh, one note on it, which is one of the basic arguments of this chapter is that digital cinema is now closer to animation than cinema as it has been traditionally understood. Which, sure, I understand this and why it might be important, but I cannot engage with it much more. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a cool chapter that's on cinema and actually does some really cool stuff where uh, he's looking at the. F- what specifically is being lifted out of cinema and remediated within new media, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, kind of rearticulated. There's a really cool discussion of the loop. Um, you know, he was way ahead of uh-huh. his time because now it, you know, the gif uh-huh. is, is such an important thing. And, and this is kind of an early theorization of the gif um, as a, as a form and like why it works the way it does and, and how the loop functions. And so that's really cool. I, I, I think, th- I don't think this is a bad chapter in any way. It's just extraneous and unnecessary. I think um, it could have been its own essay outside of it. So I'm not going to talk about it too much. Um, literally the book conclusion happens in chapter five so if you, the the big kind of formative moments happen there um that's it that's uh lev manovich lev manovich's uh the language of new media um you know sometimes for these big classic books there's this question of do we need to go back to them um and i think that this book uh is rewarding to read um, I think that there are some cool ideas here that deserve to be kind of played forward um i'm certainly i you know um Going back when I'm re-editing parts of my book in progress, I'm going to be putting more of this in there just because I didn't really realize how much in conversation I was with some of it. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't think this is as um, like, oh, gosh, you really got to deal with it as some of the the other uh, bigger books that we've read. Yeah, I I think that there I'm similar. I find there to be very interesting ideas here again about database and narrative and how these things uh, interact. Uh, Those are very close to me and sort of the work that I do. Um, And the other parts that are about largely about cinema are interesting, but also not necessarily something that I uh, need to carry forward myself. So, you know, good ideas here, definitely like in conversation with it and will cite it. Um, and to, to speak to the book's virtues, right. Uh, it is easily excertable. So if you want to pop into this thing and deal with the chapter on the interface or look at that last chapter where he talks the most at length about video games, um, he's going to give you most of what you need to know in that chapter. Yeah, it's a book built to move in that way, and I think it's been very successful um, in 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 having a big influence on a lot of different fields because it's built to move. You know, I, I think again, like what we said at the beginning, sitting and reading it all in a few sessions, uh, that, that kind of gets belabored because you see a lot of repetition. But um, so I don't think you can uh, start or uh, uh, you can start with the language of new media if you're interested in these in any of the questions that it's bringing up you should not end with the language of new media for any of those questions mm-hmm. is maybe what i'm saying well we said that we would uh, answer some questions michael yeah yeah we have two questions um we i mean we would have had more if i had remembered that it was our three-year anniversary ahead of time and put out the call um but we have two. Did, did anyone send us questions while we were recording? Uh, one person did. So if if okay. it weren't for that person, uh, uh, grats to you. We would only have this this first question. Um, subject line question for the three year show anniversary from uh, our good friend uh, by my TV. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. By my TV writes. Hello. Why? Thanks. P.S. How? 
Next question. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, we did a really good job of just reading a book a month and then talking about it for three hours and then posting that recording online. And that's really all it took. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next question comes from <clears throat> Scarlet Miracle. And they write uh, the subject question. Uh, hey, Cameron and Michael. I've been listening to the show for a while now and actually have been reading some game studies books for quite some time before then. Something I've been thinking about recently, as someone who had a game development focus during their time at uni, is how at no point during my associate or bachelor program did we ever engage directly with the field. Basically, my schooling focused heavily on the STEM side and the arts side of games without ever touching the humanities. Given that you both know more about academia than I do, having been involved so deeply with it for much longer, do you think this is the typical experience for those who are trying to be game developers? If it is, do you think uh, either the culture or the product of the games industry would be improved if this focus were shifted? Thanks, Scarlett. Mm -hmm. well, what do you think, Michael? <laughs> I have an answer to this, but uh, I think I, I don't know if it's the same or different for me. Um, Mine's, mine's a more negative answer. <laughs> I mean, uh, I would say, sure, right? I think if humanities were better integrated into these sorts of programs, maybe there would be uh, uh, different kinds of things produced that are more thoughtfully engaged with things like history uh, and, and um, sort of histories of representation and what it means to like release a game and be like, oh yeah, we're not trying to do anything political here. Right. Maybe, right. If, if these were questions or like if these were things that were thought about in maybe game development classes, then uh, how this played out when in the actual industry, things might be different. I cannot just say that, like, for certain things would be better, uh, because really, for me, it all comes down to, like, how would the humanities be integrated into these programs? Um, and what are sort of the larger forces that are bringing these things together, right? What are the larger institutional incentives? And how are, like, what metrics are going to be deployed by the deans to figure out how successful they are in meeting whatever these goals are? Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's just, uh, I, 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 I am very wary as someone who studies the humanities and the history of the humanities. I am very wary of a sense that is, you know, uh, you still encounter, right, is that the humanities might be some sort of silver bullet for whatever cultural problem is going on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because I just I do not think that's how the humanities work. Um, yeah. And, and political economy is real. Uh -huh. Right. Like like the 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 way that that. Uh, money and material moves in the world has a big impact and and there's there's no way to fire that silver bullet of the humanities to immediately fix those things mm -hmm. um i mean i'll say this let me you know i have like kind of three different answers to this they all come from like actual experiences i've had in the world um one of them is i was a i was asked this question in a job interview for a job i did not get <laughs> so maybe i answered this wrong who knows uh this might not be the reason i didn't get the job too um but uh i was asked this question basically i i was talking about a video game um and uh being very critical of the video game and then in the q a session um <laughs> there the, someone was like yeah that person one of the people who was heavily involved in making that game came through our program <laughs> that you've just heavily critiqued um what uh you know what what should we have done you know what about the curriculum uh might have had an impact on on these things that i was uh you know criticizing and i said uh nothing 
You know, I don't, there is not a single book you can read. There is not a single professor you can have. There is not a single individual object in the world that, that is going to fix a systemic problem, right? Like, I think that is uh, rewriting heroic individualism back into the world. And sometimes those things do happen, right? I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in the world. I've read books that have changed my entire perspective on the world, right? I have had professors who changed my whole perspective on the world. Um, that those That's not discounting that it occurs. But I would never want to pretend that that is now the way to do things just because it happens, right? Um, that that is uh, in the magic world what we call resu- results oriented thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I w- I would be much more interested in ways that you could systemically change something like a whole academic program and change the way that, like you were saying, Michael, that a dean evaluates the success of a program um, in order to do that. Right. So, for example, in in what in the question in a game design program. The success metrics there for everyone involved in the political economy of that is not, did you make a socially progressive video game, right? Or Mm -hmm. like a video game that made the world better. It is, did you get a job? Mm -hmm. And then secondary to that, maybe you didn't get a job, but are you like a cool entrepreneur, right? Right. And those metrics, right, of like what is valued within the world, particularly in the world of, of games education, that's the thing that has to be moved. Um, I, I don't think that that requiring people to take a game studies seminar, for example, that is appropriately diverse. I think that's probably good for those people. Like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say don't do that, right? But I don't think that would solve any like inherent problems. Um, uh, the the second thing I'll say is that uh, I have been involved in in a game design program. You know, I did my PhD in in uh, my I, my PhD was funded by working in a center that was for creative media industries broadly. So we were interested in producing students who were uh, prepared to go work in VR, three uh, D modeling. Uh, game design, all those kinds of things. And I worked predominantly on the games side of that and taught a few classes and in, in whatever. And I would say that um, still now, because you have to staff those game design classes, and I think it's changing right now. Um, I think right now we're in a great moment where there are lots of people who are theoretically and game studies engaged, engaged in the kind of humanities questions, who are also practicing designers. But I wouldn't say that that's the majority of people, and certainly that's not the vast majority of people who have the most experience in game design. The people who have the most experience in game design are people who have spent years in the game design industry, who are making games. Um, those people, for the most part, exit that industry because they have burned out, right? For, mm-hmm. for the vast majority, I'm sure there are cases when that's not true, but for the most part, people leave that industry because they no longer want to do that. And they have to find a backup career. They have to do something else with their life. And lots of the people, I think if you survey game design programs, you're going to find lots of those people who had fulfilling longer careers in game design, whether that's five years or 10 years or 15 years, and are no longer interested in the kind of boom and bust nightmare that is that, that industry. Um, and so they want to move into something that's a little bit more stable or where they can enjoy it or where they don't have to work a crunching nightmare job. Academia is pretty bad sometimes. It's not as bad as the game development industry. Um, and so what you'll find a lot of times are people who are just who are 
good at their job as game designers and have probably done a good job of moving into games education, um, but are not particularly interested in the game studies side because that's not what they do. And to be clear, that's not that different from other fields, right? Like you can go into lots of art programs in which people are not interested in art history. You know, you can, you can have a sculpture professor who does not care at all about what's going on in art theory or art history or whatever. They just really are involved in sculpture and the community of sculptors and producing work and doing all that kind of stuff. So that's normal. That's normal for um, the, the arts world um, and the world of production studies or, you know, of production. Similar if you go into a school of engineering or whatever, right? Um, so I, I think that that, again, is a political economy thing, right? Um, and at the end of the day, when you're making decisions about would you like, when you're making a hire from a game design position, um, who looks better? Someone, and who looks better for the PR materials? And who looks better as far as their capability of producing good game design students? Someone who has had 10 years of experience working for a studio or multiple studios and has all kinds of industry connections, or someone who has spent the last 10 years working on a PhD who has done some game design and maybe taught some classes, but ultimately has not spent 10 years in the office working on game design, mm -hmm. right? One of those people is so much easier to hire in the sense of like all the, the decisions you're making about who staffs your classroom and how many people can they teach and can they manage a team and will they produce students who know how to go and work in the games industry? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, the person with the PhD who's doing that work, they're, they're just more due to the, the mechanisms of education. They're more attached to game studies. Uh, the person who is doing the game design work and crunching for 10 years, it's just not going to be as attentive to game studies. And that is not to say that those are kind of, uh, un, uh, there's a firewall between those two different modes, but I will say that that is, um, a common problem that emerges, uh, you know, a common practical problem. And I totally understand. And I think from what I just explained, you can understand why um, one type of person is hired for that job and another person isn't. Um, I had a third reason and I've totally forgotten it. So we'll just say that those are the two. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, that's it. And, and do I think that it would change the world? No, I, I don't think it would uniquely change the world. But this is partially why we do this show. I think you would probably agree with this, Michael, is that I think that there are plenty of those people who are the 10-year developers who are now moved into education. There are plenty of those people who are interested in learning about games, but they don't have the time to do it. And mm -hmm. they don't have the background to do it, mm -hmm. right? Um, this show is hopefully a thing that's really interesting for them. And I know that actually we have a lot of uh, practitioners who work in the education space who listen to the show. And we, we really like that. And we get feedback from those people occasionally. And I think that's awesome. Um, we also get a, a lot of feedback from people who are kind of like, you know, one foot in both worlds who listen to the show and really appreciate you. And we get feedback from people who are just straight, you know, straight up academics or just people who are interested in the game study side and who like the show. Um, hopefully this gives everyone across that whole thing some more tools to work with and i think that at the end of the day you know one of the best uses of our show hopefully is that someone who is in a game design classroom who doesn't have time to teach the language and new media but who has a student who's interested in these questions they can listen to the show um and check it out and go oh okay i know a little about language and new media a student shows up and is interested in these ideas and you can pass the show along to them so that they can then go, you know, if they like the, the episode, they're interested in the ideas, they can go read the book themselves. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is the, one of the ideal uses or if, or if you listen to it 
and you're a game designer and you think, oh, these are pretty cool, you pass it along to a coworker, right? Like that, that to me is the, hopefully one of the best uses that this uh, show can come to is that it connects some of the often very disparate parts of the world of video games or of games in a broader sense and lets them speak to each other um, in a way that the books themselves would do if everyone had time and expertise in reading the books, which they just don't, you know, that's, and that's no one's fault. I don't think it's anyone who is working day in and day out to produce a very difficult thing like a video game. I don't think it's like your job to go read the language of new media and like become an expert on it. But hopefully you have time to listen to a three hour podcast about it over the course of a month. And then maybe you can get some of these ideas and then decide, Hey, I want to go read this one chapter. Um, you know, that to me feels like a useful ladder and stepping stone uh, for getting more conversation going. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not how the show works for people. I don't know. But still three years in, in my mind, that's what, that's one of the best things this this show can be doing for people. That is fantastic. Uh, We will not make this probably a regular segment. And if you've listened to our entire archive thus far, you know how bad we are about actually like checking for questions and everything. Uh, But if you do have other questions, thank you, by the way, Scarlett, for writing in. Um, If you have further questions, having heard this and you want to ask us more things and, you know, at some point in the future, we will answer questions again. You can email us uh, at gssb emails at gmail.com uh michael you got anything you want to take us out with well i will say that next time unless you've changed your opinion on this camera and we have decided on our next book i i haven't changed my opinion because i've forgotten so <laughs> you you tell me what we're doing i know we made a list and i just forgot let's so. re-reveal this uh yeah. so next time next month uh we will be doing something slightly different than what we've done before we will not be reading a full published book nor will we even be reading a a short kind of brief article because it's a busy time of the year although it's probably maybe going to be busy for both of us um but we're going to be reading a dissertation from 1985 a doctoral dissertation uh by mary ann buckles her uh dissertation is called interactive fiction the computer story game adventure and it is uh the first dissertation on interactive narrative um and we have decided we want to to read this because it was uh, it, it gets cited in uh work still today um but it was never produced into a full book and therefore you know you you kind of have to go out of your way to find it i mean you don't really have to go out of your way it's on the internet archive you can pull it up easy peasy but because it is not a book um because buckles uh and i i don't know i i hopefully will be able to find out some more information about this uh buckles uh after she defended did not persist in academia she left and i'm not sure what she did afterward um but nevertheless her dissertation has had a, a quite a um impact especially uh for instance uh arseth's cybertext um cites her at multiple points and so uh we will be reading it and talking about it and seeing what's what with interactive fiction and adventure yeah and and just like the smallest amount of additional context to it it's an interesting kind of document because it is in the formative stages like arseth uh of game studies proper as we imagine it now uh, it got cited a little bit, and then the intervening 20 years, not engaged with almost at all. I mean, very rarely talked about, engaged with, 
And then very recently, over the past two or three years, there has been a concerted effort to kind of rethink Buckles as an important figure for game studies. And so, um, we, you know, we want to kind of put more eyes and ears on it and its ideas, uh, in particular because... I've said this a million times on the show, but, you know, game studies before 1995, between like 1970 and 1995 is something I find fascinating. And every time we've read a book from that time period, it has given us some really cool insight into what game studies could be doing. So I'm really happy to uh, be doing this and uh, really excited to read it. I've never read it. Uh, You know, I'm familiar with it by reputation, but I've never sat down and read the whole thing. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy that we're doing it. So uh, we'll be doing that one month from now. Michael, you got to take us out with that catchphrase. Remember, folks, until next time, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. 